well, comrade? What now? Straightforward conversation. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what kind of voice that was, but it made me laugh. I I don't ever know how I'm supposed to deliver it. So I like I said, uh, I've said in the past, I'm just gonna keep delivering it in random ways until I find one that I'm comfortable with, one that feels appropriate. <laughs> So that's a no to that one. <laughs> uh, it's it's a little bit perplexing. I mean, I could easily imagine somebody tuning into our show for the first time and just being bewildered by yeah our introduction <laughs> what that was. and just tuning out. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I think I was going with. Uh, it was like there used to be an old cartoon turtle that would just talk really slow. So I think <laughs> cartoon turtle. In my mind, yeah, I think in my mind that was the first first voice that popped in. <laughs> Are you talking about the the cartoon turtle from that old Tootsie Pop commercial? No, he was a. Uh, it might have been from Looney Tunes or something where he was like, "Well, everybody," you know, just he was just. You know, it's, a, it's kind of a typical slow turtle voice, I, I guess. What if you went this entire episode talking in that voice? It would be an incredibly long episode. I don't think I could do it. <laughs> so you're saying that I we have that much to say about what we're talking about today? I think we've always got a lot to say, but I think in this particular instance, slowing down my rate of speech is just going to substantially prolong that experience. True enough. <laughs> so welcome to between the gutters where we talk about the stories within the panels i'm your co-host albert and with us is our other co-host yo everybody i'm drew okay i thought there was gonna be more i thought you were gonna you know hype it up so but... sometimes i do sometimes i don't it just depends you didn't. on this how i want to not... <laughs> yeah sometimes it just depends on whether I want to see how you're going to react to what I say, much the same way that you do these funny voices to yeah, make yeah. me react. I'm pretty sure this time around you didn't for equal measure to also see how I would respond. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you did get me. You got me. Yep. So You got got. Yeah. <laughs> I've been gotten and I will continue to be getting. <sighs> Yeah. Anyways, on this week's episode of Between the Gutters, this week on Between the Gutters, we are going to do another. Oh, hold up! Hold up! Hold up! Hold up, Albert. Yeah. What's going on? What am I? What am I holding up for? If you're, if you're doing a this week on Between the Gutters promo, <laughs> yeah. maybe we should do previously on Between the Gutters. <laughs> Where we just shout out random things from uh, TV uh, TV teasers uh, to to really pump up the drama. Like, well, hey, we took last what week off have because I you went done? to WonderCon. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Tell that's us what true. happened at WonderCon, dude. Huh. It was pretty uneventful, honestly. I'd say that the con itself was it 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 had a lot of people. There was definitely a lot of foot traffic. But 
I think a recession mindset is kicking in and it didn't really seem like people were there to shop. You know, these these cons, the way that they used to be way, way, way back in the day, you know, in the good old days, um, you know, they were cheap. Uh, the, the kind of people that would go to them would go purely for the love of comics. But, you know, in the decades since those times, it's it's really become this giant spectacle where people go for movie stars and, you know, for photo ops and for, you know, merch. And comics has kind of receded into the background a little bit. So, you know, ever since the advent of something like San Diego Comic Con, people people have just made it a point to go in droves, whether they were comic fans or not. And what ends up happening is the ticket prices just go up astronomically. So the people that are there, they've already spent, you know, like anywhere from 50 to 100 bucks just to get in. And, uh, you know, it's fair to say that I don't, I don't think they're especially you know considering the economics of of the of the day I, I i don't think a lot of people are really in the mood to just throw money around willy-nilly they they they've seen going to the actual event as an expenditure in and of itself so yeah um you know from from business end it was pretty dead uh but there were a lot of people there just you know looking for something to do, navel gazing, window shopping, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did not encounter any mouth breathers or weebs or neck beards. None of the typical villains of the Comic-Con environment that you would typically see. But then again, I didn't really venture too far from my booth for extended periods of time so they could have been there just underneath a rock or something where they, <laughs> they belong. didn't cross your path they didn't they really didn't um you know even even on the occasion where people were coming up to our booth to 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 shop or whatever uh <laughs> i didn't know i didn't know how else to put this but my first instinct to say was to say i i felt like i only encountered normal people <laughs> as opposed to not normal people abnormal <laughs> a, people abnormal people mouth uh, mouth breathers neck beards you know miscreants deviants exactly just the grossest most low level bottom tier uh <laughs> <laughs> lack of self-awareness <laughs> What other insults can I throw in there? <laughs> Sons of bastards. <laughs> People whose parents were siblings. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I didn't really expect there to be an incest reference on this episode, but here we are. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> that took me a little by surprise, but yeah, sure. You know, I feel I like mean, that's an insult we, I learned from you, anyway. That is something that I would tend to throw into the mix of things because, you know, 
what greater way can I denigrate the people that I hate than by calling them the product of an incestuous relationship? (laughs) (laughs) So did you find any comics or see any interesting or notable comics people while you were at the show? Well, that's the sad thing was, uh, you know, I mentioned how these, these shows have become these really big pop culture magnets and how people from all over come. Well, they used to come for the pop culture stuff, but really nowadays it just feels more like a flea market or something like that. And there really weren't that many comic book booths. There were one or two. And, you know, again, back to the idea of recession mentality, prices are up even in the discount bins. So, you know, back then, way, way back then, we would have, there would have been a period of time where we would find rows and rows of boxes, long boxes of comics for a quarter, 50 cents. And, you know, even up until a few years ago, uh, we would have more commonly saw, you know, dollar boxes. And even that was kind of high at the time. But now we're, I'm, I'm beginning to see a lot more $2 boxes of comics or $3 boxes where each single issue is $2 or $3. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just the sort of thing that deflates you a little bit because it really puts me in the headspace of what it feels like when I'm talking to older people and they tell me about what it was like in their day and, you know, just to see how cheap everything was and what deal everything was. And it puts me in their shoes because now I feel like I'm going around telling people, man, when I used to go to these, these used to be a quarter. You could buy so many comics a quarter. You could just take a chance on this and that. And it, it didn't mean anything to you because, you know, it was really more about just the fun of buying comics for a quarter and, you know, taking a random, uh, uh, taking a random chance on who knows what, because yep. at the end of the day, it's quarter, right? Exactly. But, but now with everything being $2 boxes or $3 boxes, I really didn't, I really wasn't motivated to dig through all those just because it didn't really feel like I was getting a really good deal. I'm sure that at some point my spirit will break and I'll just have to resign myself to the fact that those are the deals that we have now. Well, once, so. once comics, once the standard price of comics becomes $4.99, I'm pretty sure we'll be excited at the prospect of $2 comics. Uh, I mean, maybe begrudgingly. I, I don't. Definitely begrudgingly. Yeah, I'm not gonna be excited. I'm not gonna be genuinely excited for that. I'll just yeah. be excited because it'll be something to look at. We'll we'll but, be excited, but our excitement will be outweighed by our resentfulness. Yeah, exactly, exactly. My my excitement will not by any means be a full-fledged excitement as if anything it'll be a limp-wristed uh half-mass type of excitement Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so there's that um even in terms of trade paperbacks that were on sale and this is another back in my day kind of story but (laughs) um you know i i've had 
I, I still look at my shelf and I look at some of the things that I bought and I, I've bought some really expensive books for crazy good prices. I remember before COVID, I went to this one convention and they had three trade or three pick up three trade paperbacks or hardcovers for $24. And I ended up getting, I forget what I got. Um, but the main thing that I remember that I pulled from that was I got Infinity, the hardcover by Jonathan Hickman. And that's a that's book a with an $80 book. Yeah, it's like at least 75 I think. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, buying three books for 24 bucks, I basically got that book for $8 if you split 24 by three. Yeah. So, yeah. So I still look... I haven't read it yet, but I look at that on my shelf and I'm just, you know, in awe of, of what I accomplished. The deal, you know, I man. didn't go to, I didn't go to space or anything or cure cancer, but you know, I found a comic <laughs> book cheap so I can pat myself on the back. I have you, that. You have mastered the art of the deal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wasn't able to save a child from a burning building. And in fact, due to my existence, existence alone i'm pretty sure there are hundreds of kids in burdening buildings that weren't saved because of that but (laughs) (laughs) but i got a cheap comic (laughs) (laughs) i don't know why i'm laughing at the idea of children burning to death in buildings i'm laughing Uh, because i'm nervous (laughs) that's fair that's fair (laughs) um but yeah yeah, uh, in in terms of people that I saw, I didn't really see anyone. Um, a super alley. huge note. Uh, I mean, there were people there. I I think the one person that took me by surprise was, and, and it wasn't really a real big surprise, I guess. But I was walking and I saw Mark Russell at his desk, and I was kind of tempted to go over there and say something to him. Uh, I'm I'm a pretty big fan of his work. I have pretty high regard for him so but i don't think i really i'm not in the habit of being starstruck and i don't really like the idea of you know fawning over other people i I think i'm too either self-aware or too proud to do that so it's got nothing to do with shyness it's got nothing to do with shyness i think i just don't want to give another human being the satisfaction of knowing that i think well of them <laughs> oh man Dang, that is harsh he's, he's a writer you like too yeah he is he is i think this podcast is like therapy because i'm just unloading all kinds of things this is very revealing even to myself <laughs> this is very revealing to me but uh yeah yeah (laughs) were there at least other people who were lining up to see him well that's the sad thing uh there really weren't oh man well okay let me let me let me clarify so the first time i saw him there weren't really there weren't any people really there but i i did a round and on my way back uh i saw a guy who was talking with him and this guy was someone you could tell was maybe not starstruck, but he was in awe of Mark Russell because I, I only overheard a bit of their conversation, but 
uh, the snippet that I heard was the guy was talking to him and he was saying, he was talking about how he read Mark Russell's Prez, which was like one of the earlier things he had done for DC mm. Comics. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how after he read it, he he felt like he knew that this guy was was something different, you know? Yeah. That there was something yeah. special about this guy. And he wasn't wrong. I mean, I haven't read Prez. Uh, I think I have issue one somewhere. But, um, you know, because it's a key issue. Uh, <laughs> so you are a key collector. <laughs> <laughs> Only mockingly. <laughs> it's certainly not anything that I do uh, in, in solidarity with them, with their ilk. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but, you know, the first thing I read, ever really read from him was his Flintstones comic. And that was something that just blew me away. So it wouldn't surprise me uh, that someone felt as strongly about that with mm-hmm. uh, with Mark Russell, Mr. Yeah. Mr. Russell. But you're respectful to him when you're not talking to him. You just don't want to talk to him. Yeah, I'd say so. I don't want to give him the satisfaction of knowing that he's appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait until you're a father, man. You, you think that's something? Imagine what it's like being my parents. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyways, what was I going to say? Um, there was one other thing. I At one point, I was walking around the floor, and I saw this guy, and... I'm not 100% sure if he was who I thought he was, but I'm fairly confident. I'm maybe like 90% confident that he was who I thought he was. But I was walking and saw a guy and I I, I looked, I, I initially snuck a glance or not snuck a glance, but I caught him out of the corner of my eye and I did like a double take and then I kind of stared at him for a bit, you know, not in a creepy way. <laughs> Um, you know, just just caught in his attention way. and we yeah, and we made eye contact and I just wouldn't let him escape it. You know, not creepy at all. Right. Uh, right. But <laughs> it was uh I think it was Jason Aaron. Oh so, nice. Yeah. And, and you know, it's different when you see him and he's not at his table, uh and and you just kind of see him just walking around. It just feels like he's out in the wild. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that makes sense actually long, i didn't see how him. long did you maintain eye contact with him um until until he was until he was uncomfortable enough to start squirming um you know <laughs> yeah i mean nice. i left once security got there so uh. <laughs> <laughs> but there was one other person that I did see, and um, this isn't really a comic book person, and and this is definitely another situation where I'm not really a hundred percent sure if this person was who I thought they were. But I am, I'm with this. I'm, I think I'm like ninety nine percent certain that they are who I thought they were. Um, I was walking around and I saw who I think was Aisha Tyler. I I don't know if you know who she is, but who is that? She is, uh, I guess she's a TV personality. Um, she she has been in 
some TV shows and stuff, but I think the thing that she's well known for as of right now is I think she's the host of Whose Line Is It Anyways? Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, I feel like you know, she's not a mega star or anything, but she's not nobody either. Uh, yeah. I see. Uh, I mean, I, I just know her because I, I I think she's pretty attractive. So I've always I've always been somewhat aware of her. So did you make eye contact with her as well? <laughs> uh, well, actually, with her, I think I looked over and I saw her, and I did that thing where I kind of contemplated whether it was her or not, and. I think she saw me looking and she gave me you know the the eyeball equivalent of a cold shoulder uh so <laughs> so she gave me that and i you know i wasn't gonna bug her about it but once she went on her way it was just like okay yeah that's uh yeah that's that's her thing that's that's her her or you know okay, just kind of okay. yeah all right Nice man. Sounds like you had a decent time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's certainly a break from my uh typical routine and I appreciate it for that cuz it's just a chance to go out, have some fun and you know, look at comics. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I I'm on her Instagram right now and I just realized, okay, she's she's on Archer. Also, she's one of the voices on Archer. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. But anyways, back to the episode at hand. This week we are continuing with our really long build-up to the top 25 DC comics of all time with another honorable mention. Um, so we are really edging the crap out of out of this rollout. But you know what? There are a lot of really awesome DC comics out there that we want to cover, and it's unfortunate that we can't include everything into the top 25 because it wouldn't make it a top 25. We uh, could do I mean? a top 2500. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> I really don't. That sounds like the seventh circle of hell. <laughs> uh, yeah. But that being said, uh, there are some some comics that demand our attention regardless of whether they made the top 25 list or not and this one in particular was something that was brought up on our instagram by one of our followers comics for nerds i believe it was comics for nerds is that right comics are for nerds i think comics are for nerds i'm sorry i yeah. don't don't read everything too clearly which <laughs> makes sense cuz I'm on a podcast that is entirely about reading. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, yes, comics are for nerds. Uh, I, I forget what the post exactly was, but we were talking about um, some comics and he mentioned. It might have been Casey when we were Intimates. talking about Wildcats. Oh, OK. That makes sense because Wildcats is totally a Joe Casey joint. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that it would translate over to this because it's the intimates 
and you know he mentioned it and he was curious as to our take on it so we will be discussing that today drew do you mind giving our good listeners some background information on the intimates so we are talking about the 12 issue series published by wildstorm in 2005 wildstorm obviously was an imprint of dc comics at that point the intimates was created by joe casey Jim Lee and Giuseppe Camancoli. Hopefully I pronounced his name correctly, but I can't be sure. The series uh, was written by Joe Casey. The art was by Giuseppe Camancoli. Sandra Hope was his inker. And it also had other artistic contributions from Scott Iwahashi, Carlos Deanda, Ale Garza, and Jim Lee. Covers were designed by Ryan Hughes. The series was colored by Randy Mayer, Wildstorm FX, Tony Avina, and Johnny Wrench. And the series was lettered by Richard Starkings, Rob Steen, and Comicraft. Edited by Ben Abernathy and Alex Sinclair. So, hmm. before we dive super deep into the series itself, you have any thoughts on any of the creative people involved in the series, Albert? I believe in the past we've gone over the the lesser knowns and kind of worked our way backwards to, you know, the big names that are associated with it. I don't. Well, I'll I'll start with the artist Giuseppe Camincoli. Um He's got a name that's familiar, but it's not something. He's not someone that I. I think he was on. He worked on Wildcats, right? Uh, he, he might have. Did he? No, you're thinking of Duncan Rollo, I think. Okay. Okay. He did a couple issues at the end of version 3.0. Okay. Um. Yeah. So I'm not super familiar with Giuseppe Camincoli. Uh, I, like the name is familiar, but I can't really recall anything he's actually worked on. So. You know, this this was an opportunity to familiarize myself with his art as well as Joe Casey's writing. So there's that. Um, let me take a look. Uh, in terms of the other artists that were associated with it, I, I'm definitely not familiar with Scott Iwahashi. I, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, uh, Ali Garza, I'm kind of familiar with, but that's just because he's the source of gossip. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just, that's that's a very generous way to put it, but yes. <laughs> um, Sandra Hope sounds familiar. I don't really, I can't really think of anything she's worked well, on. We uh, read one of her comics recently, or maybe a few months ago when we talked about Flashpoint, because she inked uh Kubert uh Andy Kubert Okay. Okay. Yeah. She was probably on the strong you know, she's definitely on the stronger end of things to come out of that book. Yeah. So, you know, I bear no ill will towards her yet. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What if she what if I I leave here the office tonight and I find out that she, you know, 
uh, broke into my home and murdered my family. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that? Okay. Anything can happen, man. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you do have a very vivid imagination. I'll say that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I never. I always presume that anyone is capable of breaking and entering and murdering families. So yeah. There we go. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Drew? What do you think of the artist? I think Cummin Coley is an underrated artist. He penciled a big chunk of BKV's Swamp Thing, but I hadn't read that Swamp Thing run at the time when it came out. So actually, The Intimates was my first introduction to his work because when The Intimates came out in 2005, I was like full on into my Joe Casey love. So I was buying everything that he was doing. As long as it had his name on it, I was going to get it. Uh, and I was buying stuff off the rack too, so reading it month to month, which is good for the intimates because I don't think it's ever, it, it, yeah, I don't believe it's ever been collected. Uh, but the intimates was my first introduction to Kamenkoli's work. He ended up leaving after issue eight. I think it was because he was going to do some Batman comics, which is kind of lame. It's kind of like how DC poached Dustin Wynn off Wildcats version 3.0. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not yeah, even sure how I long. That's the case too. Yeah, I'm not sure how long he did Batman at that time, but uh, at some point afterwards, he ended up drawing a bunch of Peter Milligan's Hellblazer run. So those were those were good, and I think he he's a guy who continued to to improve. Uh, like I think the art and the intimates, his art and the intimates is, is pretty dang good. Uh for superhero stuff and when he drew hellblazer i think he showed that he can draw more than just your typical cape comics but he did find plenty of mainstream success drawing other big two books like batman amazing spider-man he had a pretty uh significant chunk of spider-man comics that he drew he also drew darth vader uh, the star wars when marvel got the star wars license but the Intimates, I think, was still relatively early in his career. And I, I do think that speaks again to Casey's sort of tastemaking sensibilities because he's got this history of how a lot of comics that he works on, he, he's just able to find great artistic collaborators who, who end up often end up becoming like bigger names or bigger stars, um, you know, when they go on and, and do other stuff. Common Coley's art in the series is cartoony, upbeat, kind of poppy, which fits the, I guess, the teenage superhero theme of the book. But it's also kind of subversive because, as we'll discuss later on, the, the tone of the book is not really your typical superhero teen kind of story. It's and I not, think, yeah. Yeah, Sandra Hope's inking gives his work this sort of slick, clean look that I think makes it look on par with any other Big Two Cape comic at the time. We did discuss one of his other comics on our show in the past when we talked about Scab, a Hellblazer story written by Milligan back in our Hellblazer roundup back in episode 97. So there's that too. After yeah. he left, the art suffered though. I, I also don't know who Scott Iwahashi is. For all I know, this could have been like his only professional work. This, this first, was his big break. <laughs> yeah. 
His first issue is serviceable, but his second just looks badly rushed. And then we have Carlos Deanda and Ale Garza. And those are artists who, even at the time, they had a good amount of experience. They'd done quite a bit of stuff for other Wildstorm books. But I, I think their work on this series is bad by their standards. Like, either they both try to switch up their styles to try and match what Common Coley had established, or they were just dealing with a bunch of deadline pressure. Could be a combination of both. I, I really don't know too much what was going on behind the scenes there. But regardless of what the reason is, as a finished product, the result is that the last few issues of the series are just marred with really substandard artwork. Mm. Mm. The other two creators of co-creators of the Intimates, uh, in addition to Common Coley, you mentioned are Joe Casey and Jim Lee. I would recommend for our listeners to check out episode 155, where we talked about Wildcats. That's when we also shared a lot of more detailed thoughts about Joe Casey. So no need to like rehash all that right now. Um, you can listen to episode 155. And for Jim Lee, he designed the costumes or the characters in the book. And he also drew a few panels here and there because the at least the first chunk of issues has a comic within the comic that one of the characters likes likes to read, and Jim Lee would draw the panels of that comic, basically a spy comic, a super spy comic. Uh, but we also did cover a Jim Lee comic back in episode 110 when we discussed Batman Hush. <laughs> <laughs> right. If I right. wasn't inside my own house right now, I'd probably spit. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Dang. I mean, dang, indeed. That's uh, those those are some strong feelings to have against Jim Lee. <laughs> well, I was referring to uh, Hush in particular because I, I think oh, okay. that's a really dumb okay. comic. Okay, 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 <laughs> okay. Fair. That's more fair by far. Okay, it, it's it's a terrible comic, and we've spent heck. We did an entire episode about how terrible it is. So <laughs> yeah. Did you have any other? comments you wanted to say about anybody well if we're done talking about the artistic end of it or or the the uh yeah the artistic side we we could talk about joe casey too unless you wanted to mention any of the other uh people that worked on the book don't really have too much to say about the uh colors or the letters this time around i mean i guess the one thing about the lettering that kind of stands out is it, it does look different because the the word balloons are more rectangular. Like they're, they've got like curved edges, but they're more rectangular than your typical ovals, I would say. And this is a dense series. There's a lot of text because every page, or not every page, but a bunch of pages, most pages in the series have what they call the info scroll, where it's uh, inspired by the 24-hour news cycle and the news ticker meant to overload us with information. And Joe Casey writes a bunch of random things, factoids or things that add a little extra stuff to the narrative in those mm. info scrolls. So there's a 
you know, a specific design and look um, for the info scrolls throughout the entire series that remains pretty consistent. Yeah, uh, the covers yeah. actually, I would want to point out the covers stand out too because they're designed to look like magazine covers with this, at least a magazine cover from like the early 2000s where they have all sorts of words on them and again information overload i think to kind of convey the idea that teenagers have short attention spans and constantly need stimulation so there's all this stuff just jumping out at you <laughs> on the cover right 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 that makes sense yeah you're i mean i don't really know the the letterers here but uh whoever they were they uh they definitely had their work cut out for them uh just because like you said, this was a series that was very caption heavy and text heavy. Um, it's it's pretty dense, and Joe Casey does do a lot to really throw in a lot of different styles into the the text that he's presenting to us, the reader. So, it, yeah, it definitely feels like there was. When you said that the purpose of it was to just assault our senses with information overload, I completely see that as something that he was trying to capture when he made this comic. So, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, I, it, it makes sense to me. makes total sense. But, yeah. Um, other than that, the... The main person that I guess I'd have to talk about is Joe Casey himself. He's, well, at least in my experience, he's not someone that I've read that I initially had read too much. Uh, if I had to be completely honest, the real reason that I'm aware of him to the degree that I am aware of him is mostly because of Drew, because Drew is just a pretty big fan of joe casey so whenever mm -hmm. joe casey's got some new work coming out um you know drew's always the first guy to either recommend it or you know bring attention to it in in one way or another so um i'd say of the things that i've read from him the the stuff that i'd probably they really sticks out to me is to something like well we've talked about it in in our in one of our in our wildcats episode we, we we talked about him in the wildcats episode but i was gonna say um when we did the uh, we did one episode where we were ranking like top 10 image comics or something like that and i mentioned mm -hmm. milkman murders that was something of his that really stuck with me um yeah you know after i'd read it but you know he's 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 definitely done more than his fair share of comics um i think about you know something like enter the mandarin um iron man enter the mandarin is something that i i remember him for uh you know wildcats as we've just talked about so yeah that's um yeah he's he's i I do think that reading the intimates did give me more insight into 
I guess some of the more creative aspects of what he was trying to do, um, you know, in this time period. So there is that. Uh, I do think, yeah, we'll we'll go into that more um, mm-hmm. uh, once we get into the actual book discussion itself. But yeah, I, I do think that everything he writes definitely at least leaves you with some some kind of food for thought. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. He and Peter Milligan are my two favorite writers in comics. So pretty familiar with most of his work. There are a handful of things here and there that I don't own. Uh, and there are uh, some longer stories that he's written that I've collected, but I just haven't gotten around to reading. I just need to like sit down and do it. But for the most part, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with his work. And just, yeah, I mean, I just love his stuff, man. There's just something about his writing style and his approach to storytelling that really vibes with my sensibilities and resonates with me. So I'm always going to be a fan of his. Unless he murders your family or something. (laughs) Always, always leave room for that caveat. Yeah. 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 (laughs) The moment that he murders my family, he ceases to become one of my favorite writers. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, geez. So, you know, Shakespeare, just so you know, you're on my list. You better watch out. Uh, all right. So, yeah, let's talk about. Well, I'm kind of curious. Uh, you did you mentioned that the Intimates was the first thing by him you read? No, I was already into his okay. work at this point. So when it first came out, I was excited and I was buying it off the racks. So okay. okay. This was 2005, maybe even like late 2004, just because. I mean, all the issues are cover dated uh, from like January 2005 to December 2005. But you know how in comics, the, they usually come out a couple months before the cover date. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. anyway, yeah, I was already a fan of his and I was buying this on a month to month basis while I was. Yeah, I was a senior in college at the time. So last year of school. Uh. I don't know, man. It was just something that I got into and uh, really enjoyed. I don't think I had read a ton of his work at this point, but yeah. I had read enough of it to realize that he was one of my favorites. So him doing this new Wildstorm book was something that I had to check out because the other Wildstorm comics he had written at that point just blew me away with Mr. Majestic, Wildcats, Automatic Kafka. So with the Intimates, I was like, dude, it's going to be better than like whatever stuff he's been doing at Marvel or the other DC books. Just because it's, uh, you know, Wildstorm. He, I, I felt like at the time that was like the mark of creativity, you know, like that early period of Wildstorm after DC had bought him out. It was kind of like a golden age for that imprint where they were just churning out classic after classic. I mean, maybe at the time we didn't call them classics, but with, you know, 20 years passing, I think it's fair to say that a lot of that stuff has, 
withstood the test of time. You know, we're talking about things like the Authority, Planetary, uh, the Wildcats Run. Uh, you know, it's it's like all these things, man. Sleeper, and I I think right. yeah, I think the Intimates was probably like the the book that came out at the tail end of that really creative period and like after the intimates there were still a couple of gems that wildstorm would put out here and there before they ended up uh you know being dismantled by dc entirely but for the most part that early period up until like around 2005 it was just a bunch of really memorable books yeah yeah i remember at the time uh when it came out well if i had to be completely transparent i was i wasn't super familiar with joe casey at this point i wasn't really familiar with this book so Mm -hmm. um i do remember seeing the advertisements and i think if anything the jim lee art just did more i i know for them it was a selling point because you know jim lee is jim lee yeah but i think for me it just felt it made it something that I was actually more dismissive about because I was just like, oh, okay, it's just another image Jim Lee thing. So <laughs> I didn't really, I, I, I certainly didn't give it the attention or the, uh, the, the, the opportunity that I should have given to it, um, you know, because reading it, uh, just, just, purely based on superficial reasons it just felt like it was going to be another superhero smash them up along the lines of a bunch of other older image stuff that i had seen or come to expect from someone like jim lee you know yeah it's uh pretty deceptive because he drew the covers for the first few issues but then when you look inside he really only drew a couple panels here and there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, uh, now that I can come back to it all these years later, I, I'm I'm probably one of the reasons that the book didn't do quite as well as it could have or should have. Like I I don't know. I'm, I'm I have a feeling that the book itself was meant to be twelve issues. So it was meant to be an ongoing series. It got canceled. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, never mind then. So I'm, I'm probably not one of the. I didn't help to keep it alive. I'll, I'll say that much. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. But yeah, you're you're correct that they did end up pumping up Jim Lee's contributions to try and sell the book in the beginning, because it was just you know a couple years after Hush at this point, and his name. I mean, he's. He was st- he was a really big star at the time, and DC was just trying to sell series based on his name, you know. So like him doing these covers and being credited with co-creating the characters and designing them, doing the covers and stuff. It was supposed to you know hype people up and get them to buy it. I even remember when DC launched their solo series the anthology series where each issue would have work all by a singular artist. I remember in the promo materials, 
in the marketing, they always mentioned that Jim Lee would be one of the artists who would get his own issue of Solo at one point, and it never happened. Like, but they just wanted to use his name, you know? It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think Jim Lee needed to have his own issue of Solo. <laughs> yeah, it would have been dumb. Yeah, it. He's. It just feels like Solo is something that that really is there to highlight, you know, quote unquote, artiste. And, you know, Jim Lee is absolutely an artist, lowercase a, right? But, (laughs) like, I don't know if he's someone that I would necessarily say is a dude who has vision or, you know, really anything. Man, I'm really trying to look for words that don't. Make it no, you don't like have I'm to be diplomatic, dude. dude. Down. <laughs> you don't have okay. to be diplomatic. So you just say I what would you just feel, say, Albert. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm saying it right now as we speak. I'm, I'm ramping myself up to say what I need to say. But essentially, he's, he's a guy that I feel is pretty creatively bankrupt and uh, <laughs> just really doesn't have much in terms of, of uh, creative juices. Um, you know, I, I think. Technically, looking at his art, you could say that it looks cool, I guess, if you're into it, if you're into Jim Lee's style. Eh, heck, I, I'd even say there was a point in time where I was too. I Heck, even, uh, this past year, I, I bought that Jim Lee X-Men trading card book. So there's definitely some stuff that I do enjoy about his art, but I don't necessarily look at him as this leading voice in creativity or anything like that he's just i guess an artist that i would look to as just a dude who draws cool looking sentinels or something yeah (laughs) yeah yeah and and you know now that i'm thinking about it looking at the covers that they drew and reading this series for the first time and understanding what the series was about i i'd probably even say that the cover art for me anyway sort of detracts from i guess the spirit of the book well no that's not what true if, what if the spirit of the book is to be subversive though uh, I, I feel like part of the book is that joe casey's trying to trick people into thinking that they're gonna be reading you know the wild storm teen titans or something but instead, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's something totally different. Yeah, that's that's true. Like I, when upon reconsidering it, I guess, I guess there is a point to that, right? Uh, the the we we talked about this in the last week's episode, but the misdirection is 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 an element of it of this book in and of itself, to the point where it's meant to draw us in and and like you said it's it's subversive in that sense right so mm-hmm. by drawing us in with the promise of pop culture or or you know an art style that is poppy on on the surface only to give us something more substantive once we really consume it um yeah i guess from that perspective it would seem 
it, it serves a purpose, right? So, yeah. so in that sense, I don't know if Jim Lee was. Well, okay, I'm going to give him some credit and assume that they told him and that he was like, okay, I'm on board and, you know, this is going to be part of the uh, the the allegory or the artistic element of the book itself, right? Which is, so so I'm, I'm going to play mm-hmm. along with it and I'm going to do what I do so that you can really dig deep and give them the more meaningful stuff. I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that Jim Lee was aware of this and part of it. And in that sense, you know, he was uh, a willing participant and his contribution isn't, you know, it's it's one thing to 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 draw the art for these covers the way that he draws them with the intent of being misleading. And it's another thing to to draw him the way that he drew him in to be completely oblivious to that fact. So <laughs> then it would if he was if he had been oblivious to it, then it would have been like Joe Casey was just making him making the butt fun of a joke. Him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which would be pretty exactly. hilarious because Jim Lee would technically would be the boss in this situation because it's his imprint. <laughs> Now I kind of wonder what that conversation would have been like behind the scenes. Like if he had told, if Joe Casey had just told him, yeah, you're just, you're just the best and everybody loves you. And they just, we, we got to have you on this man. Cause you know, you're the Lee. <laughs> Even if all you can do are a couple of covers and one or two random yeah, yeah. panels here and there, like that's going to be more than enough, man. People are going to eat yeah. it up just because yeah, you're, you're going to be the artist. Yeah, you're going to be the thing that saves this book. You're going to keep us afloat. It's going to be so cool. <laughs> yeah. Now I want now I want that to be the narrative. <laughs> uh, do you want to go into the synopses of the book? I I do have the wikipedia page open and i guess i could give like a, a brief synopsis so that our good fair listeners can know what the book is about sure man let's hear what wikipedia has to say all right the intimate follows the lives of superpowered teenagers and their lives in a school for superheroes it focuses on the characters behind the superpowers and their lives rather than the missions or action-oriented conflicts seen in most superhero comics the series was known for its information overload st- storytelling style with pop-up panels and info scrolls in the bottom of each page, providing small facts about the events taking place, such as glimpses into a character's history or random facts. Uh, one issue featured a fake ad for the food given away at the seminary, chemically treated to calm all overactive behavior. So that's that's basically the spoiler-free version of the synopses without giving away too much superhero school with superheroes and following their lives Mm -hmm. it's a simple but a great high concept up to this point had we seen something in comics about a superhero school i mean i guess x-men was kind of like that but not really yeah yeah i I don't know. I I don't think we've seen anything that was as specific as following super teenagers throughout their daily life. But 
we certainly have had a lot of comics with super teenagers. Um, there were yeah. there was the X Men, the Teen Titans. Then you even had stuff like the New Warriors, or um, I mean, this would be later, but something like Avengers Academy, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But even those stories, they all tended to focus on the more superheroic aspects of these characters and the the window dressing was that it just happened they just happened to be teenagers that was the i guess yeah the 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 superficial thing that made it quote unquote different than your avengers right mhm mhm that i guess that's the selling point is yeah they're they're teens just like you so you know 30 40 year old writers are going to write teens to uh, <laughs> relate to you guys this is for you you should see yourself in them right because <laughs> that makes sense it yeah. makes total sense that a 30 year old would write a convincing 13 to to 16 year old character <laughs> yeah just like when whenever claremont writes dialogue for you know your shadow cats or your jubilees or your new mutants yeah absolutely the older he gets the more it makes sense (laughs) (laughs) that's why whenever they you know pull him out of cobwebs and have him write some version of x-men uh every every few years and he goes back to writing those characters they just sound more and more authentic (laughs) 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 and realistic (laughs) (laughs) you know because jubilee is always saying things like cowbunga and dude (laughs) Radical. Fantastic. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I don't have a cow. <laughs> You're so tubular. You're an awesome babe. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I guess I will mention this while we're on the topic. Um, but I think the thing that's different here for the intimates as opposed to you know chris claremont or marv wolfman these just ancient dudes trying to write teenagers right but then uh were they ancient back in the 80s though i assume that they were just the from the way that they write (laughs) (laughs) in my mind they've always been old Uh, they're they're basically. Why, why stop there, man? We we can talk about Stan Lee writing Peter Parker. Yeah, <laughs> in high yeah, school. that's true. That's true. I was gonna say they're they're basically the uh, Jack Nicholson from um, The Shining at the end, where the picture sh- where they're looking at the picture of the hotel, and they're just like, he's always been here. He's never left. Um. <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, the, the thing I was going to say that makes it different here, and, and I do, I would say that Joe Casey does go over the top in in writing their dialogue by making them, you know, uh, have their own speech tics and using slang and whatnot. But I, I, I'd say the thing that makes it authentic here is that he doesn't really focus too much well, no, that's not true. He does focus a lot on the on their 
speech and the writing and, and talking styles. But I would say that the thing that makes it more authentic is that he focuses on pretty universal ideas of what it means to be a young person growing up. And these are things that translate to almost every generation. Granted, you know, each generation has new things that they're dealing with that previous generations didn't, but to some degree, those feelings of, you know, teenage angst and inadequacy, those are always going to be there in some form or another. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just thought that that was worth mentioning. So, you know, don't look at, you know, him writing uh, punchy and having him use the term wigga or something like that and say, no, but talks like that, <laughs> like that. I wouldn't let that limit my ability to read this book and enjoy it because but you know what? It's not back in 2005, people did talk like that. They did. They did. Well, I mean, I don't know if kids were talking like that. Kid, people but... I knew in college talked like that. White people I really? knew in college talked like that. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. I uh, did not go to college with you, but that did not make me want to go to college with you. <laughs> <laughs> when I was in college, I don't think I met, to be fair, I, I didn't really talk to too many people at, at my school, but I did not talk to anyone that talked like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'd ever met anyone who used that term unironically. <laughs> so, well, okay. Well, let me clarify. I, I'm, I'm assuming that when you said that people were talking like that. They were being sincere. Yeah, as far as I could tell. Oh, but it's man. just one of those things where it felt like they were just <laughs> putting on an affectation because they like listening to rap music or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. Which, which yeah. is kind of the point with Punchy. That's sort of yeah. part of his uh, character and or his, it's part of his personality. So that is... I guess Joe Casey does capture yeah the it's oblivious a, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's the a moment in time for that sure. kind of person yeah, yeah. I mean there's yeah. even an issue I think it was like the issue about Dead Kid Fred and Punchy is talking to the guy and Dead Kid Fred says why do you talk like that you're white <laughs> yeah I remember that <laughs> <laughs> see that that was something that resonated with me. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that felt like that felt like that was Dead Kid Fred felt like he was saying something that was real. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess now that we're on the on the subject a little bit, we can go into the characters. Yeah, yeah. So our main cast is Punchy, Destra, Duke, MTV, Sykes, and Keyfong. So these are the kids who are in the in the same homeroom and uh yeah we can i guess we can just say a little bit about each of them we mentioned punchy's uh characteristics in terms of how he speaks but his power set is that he has this hand puppet that i guess he when he was a kid he was he dug it out of somewhere and it has these alien properties that allow him to generate an energy fist and punch through super solid stuff with superhuman strength mm -hmm. destra yeah he's oh yeah you got some, some about you want to say something about punchy 
Yeah, I was gonna say he's. I guess he's kind of like a Green Lantern, but just all he can make is a giant fist, right? I think so. Yeah, if he can do anything else, yeah. I don't think we re- ever really see it. Okay. Okay. And it's also yeah, kind of funny ahead. that he always has to wear the little puppet. So. Yeah. <laughs> it just yeah. makes him look silly because he's trying to act, you know, tough and cool, but he's got a puppet <laughs> on his hand. But the source of his power is this yeah. tiny little punching puppet. Well, in Wikipedia here, it, they call it a a punching nun puppet. So it, if you can imagine, it's like a little tiny nun with little tiny boxing gloves. Yeah. <laughs> then we have Destra. She's the spoiled rich girl of the school. And her power is she can bite off her fingernails and then her fingernail clippings that she bites off she can like throw them and they create explosions so she's kind of like a uh, boom boom except she needs her fingernails yeah yeah i think they also said that she's indestructible too or she's got at the very least really high durability yeah is it just durability in general or is it just uh is she just immune to her own explosions uh I mean, when I read it, my my understanding of it was just in a general durability. Oh, okay. But Got I could be misunderstanding that. Yeah. I mean, regardless, it doesn't really come into play too much during the story. So it doesn't. I didn't really have to think about it too much. There's no scene where she steps out in front of a hail of bullets and <laughs> you know, yeah. just acts as a human shield or anything like that. Right. The next character is Duke. He's this sort of a, I guess, if you could imagine a guy who's sort of dressed like a football player and training to be like the next Captain America or something. He's this all-American guy. uh, And his power is super strength and some level of invulnerability. He's also... Got a funny backstory because his dad is this unbearable redneck. And yeah. <laughs> but but Duke's not like his dad, so he's like a more like normal person. Yeah. You might even say he's kind of the antithesis of what his dad is, because he's he's kind of sensitive, he's level headed, kind of meek. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually yeah. an interesting point because his dad is the stereotypical poster child of toxic masculinity. But Duke, even though he's supposed to like represent that sort of traditional American hero, he doesn't really have any of those really masculine qualities other than his powers and the way he looks. And yeah, his physicality, his physique, his his uh, his image. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you were just to look at him and you were to make a a judgment based on that, the expectation w- of him would be, oh, yeah, he's he's a tough guy, right? So he's going to resolve everything with his fist. He's, I guess, everything that you would presume out of positive masculine uh, characteristics, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the of the non-toxic variety which is 
like you said, he's like Captain America, so he's just noble and heroic and strong and all these things. But uh, Duke is just a hero in training, and he's just a teenager at that. So mm-hmm. it kind of makes sense that he would be insecure and uncertain of a lot of things. He doesn't come into this fully formed as the archetypal hero that he looks like right exactly our next character is mtv she's a girl who was exposed to some kind of alien rock and it transformed her natural state into invisibility but gave her the power to become visible (laughs) so that's really all she has and and she's just kind of insecure because of her appearance and being overweight, uh, she's really shy and withdrawn at times. But one of the things early on in the series we see is that she has a crush on Punchy, of all people, and she's too shy to be direct and try to talk to him. So she does that thing teenagers do, I guess, where she kind of texts him anonymously to try and get his attention and then yeah, the way that whole thing plays out is super awkward and cringy. Uh, probably, again, realistic compared to something like how Claremont would write a teen story. Yeah. Yeah. Next up, we have Sykes. He's a guy who doesn't say anything throughout the series. He gets an issue dedicated to his origin later on in issue six, but... His power is that he has this uh, null field around his head and it kind of keeps him in this passive state where he can't really talk to people, but uh, it's assumed that he can still understand and hear people. It's just that he had he doesn't communicate. And it's never really explained why he doesn't just use sign language or write messages. It seems like there is something kind of uh mental going on in his in his yeah. brain also and the issue that alien to them very alien yeah he kind of just yeah goes with the crowd and at one point in issue six the issue that's dedicated to his story they the other kids actually deactivate his null field and then uh it pretty much draws them into a world of madness <laughs> pretty crazy yeah. stuff yeah yeah that was a pretty creative issue mm-hmm and then our last kid is Kifong. He is the transfer student and our Asian brother, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he makes us look good because he's just the all-around cool kid. He he can do everything. He can do no wrong. He's just yeah. uh he's everything we want an Asian kid to be. <laughs> exactly, man. <laughs> <laughs> and his superpower is he has these things called chronal bubbles, which I guess allow him to exist outside of the timeline or cause other people to get trapped in a time bubble <clears throat> or something. It's again, it's one of those things that isn't fully explained. It's a pretty in, abstract power. Yeah, it's not fully ex- explained. It's abstract, but it works for the comic because we know what we need to know, and that's exactly. good enough. Exactly. All right. You want to talk a little bit about the 
craft of the comic. And as we discuss the craft, we can maybe talk about some of the issues that were highlights to us. How's that sound? That sounds good. That's I think that's a good place to start. So in terms of the craft, we mentioned this a little bit, but they do. The book does experiment a lot with information overload. And because of that, every page is just inundating you with different ways of communication. And I do think that that is something pretty unique in and of itself, especially if you're walking into this expecting just another Teen Titans or, you know, Young Avengers, uh, you know, clone or something like that. It's, even though it has the trappings of a comic like that, when you start reading it and you begin to notice, you know, presuming that you're aware enough of it or you're paying attention to that detail, um, it's it's something that as a choice is a pretty interesting way to set this book aside from your typical teenage superhero books. So in terms of craft, I will say that the choice to do that is a very interesting choice. Um, and to keep it up for all 12 issues is pretty wild in and of itself. Um, there's this one, the one of the big things that he, that Joe Casey includes in the series is the info scroll. We, we mm -hmm. talked about this a little, but it's basically like a news ticker that they, there's no real explanation for what it is or why it's there. It's, it acts as a narrator to the story and you don't even really know who's narrating it. I guess you could just say it's God or Joe Casey, right? It's, you know, mm -hmm. whoever, whoever is overseeing everything. Right. And it doesn't, it's not like, you know, I feel like we've already ragged on him enough for this episode, but <laughs> it's not like Claremont where he's just taking it as an opportunity to just bloviate, you know, <laughs> at length about whatever, because in his mind, that's poetic, that's art or whatever. This, this, it's, it almost feels like this version of it is very just stream of consciousness on Joe Casey's part. And I forget which issue there this happens in, but it happens several times throughout the series where Joe Casey in the voice of the, the info, what was it called again? The info, the info uh, scroll. The, the info scroll in the voice of the info scroll where he talks about how or or he alludes to the fact that this must be driving the readers crazy or if this is driving you nuts reading it imagine how nuts it's making me having to write it you know <laughs> yeah uh, it's got a lot of self-awareness yeah exactly exactly i thought that was uh a clever a clever note to make in it. Yeah. 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 I think the writing is excellent throughout. Like I said earlier, it has a simple but great high concept, a superhero high school, you know, like that pretty much sells itself. If you're already interested in Cape comics, 
and the stuff that Casey was trying to do in the series. Yeah, I would say he was trying to do some new stuff or at least stuff that we didn't really see at the time. And I, I still think we don't often see it in Cape Comics today. Uh, we mentioned the density to the comic, and I think that's something that really demands our attention as we read the series. So, for example, the first issue, I think, um, is a good example of the density, because when you look at that first issue, we move very quickly from scene to scene and from character to character with the occasional flashback tossed in here and there. The narrative jumps around a lot, and it's pretty much on us as the readers to just read carefully in order to make sense of it because of so many quick transitions, you know, like even... Within a single page, you'll have multiple scenes. Um, and compared com when you compare that to other comics, a lot of comics, they like to do scene transitions after a couple pages, you know? But then here, you get a couple panels, and on the same page, you're already, like, at a different scene. So in a way, that first issue, it's almost like the first day at a new school, which is kind of the point of it, because you're moving from one place to another place, crossing paths with all these people and you don't really know who's going to be important or who's going to fade into the background. Uh, it just kind of takes a little while for you to, to get your bearings. So yeah, even from that first issue, the density of it really adds to the effect of that first day of school, which is very fitting because in the story, it's their first day at the seminary, uh, which is the name of the school. Mm hmm. Maybe the series isn't as groundbreaking as something like Wildcats or Automatic Kafka, but I do think one of its best qualities is how it's steeped in irony. Like you said with the info scroll, you know, like it's a very self-aware book, but it doesn't really try to beat you over the head with how self-aware it is, unlike a Deadpool comic or something. Like a lot of the stuff where he's making fun of the info scroll. That doesn't even come in until like a few issues into the book, you know? So like, I feel like it takes patience in order to hold that back, you know? Like a lot of uh, lesser writers or more impatient writers, I think, would throw in those kind of jokes in the first issue. But he waited a while to let you get accustomed to the info scroll. So like the deeper you get into the series, especially if you're reading it all in one go nowadays... It's like, it just kind of surprises you with, with the humor at times because you're not really yeah. expecting it. It's like he sets it up so that you as the reader get accustomed to the info scroll for its intended initial purpose, which is, you know, as a delivery device for uh, information, right? It's like captions, essentially. Yeah. But over time as the comic evolves and as you're following it 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 evolves and becomes self-referential and comedic and adds insight almost becoming its own character right to mm -hmm, to to mm -hmm. these to the existing cast of characters so that's that's an interesting use of that info scroll and you're right if if it was Deadpool or like John Byrne She-Hulk, it would just be this thing where, hey, I'm breaking the fourth wall. Isn't that funny? Like, see, <laughs> I'm talking to you. Isn't that great? And 
I think especially now in 2023, the interesting thing about that is we live in an era where Rick and Morty was something that sort of was the peak uh, version of this because so much of that humor revolves around, you know, characters breaking the fourth wall and being self-referential. And, you know, this was when it, when Rick and Morty came out, I forget when, but um, you, you might be able to take Deadpool and Rick and Morty and just kind of bundle those two together for, for, you know, in, uh, I guess making that sort of comedy mainstream. But mm-hmm. the interesting thing about that is now that we're in 2023, it, it almost feels like people are over that to the point where, I mean, it's okay. This it's is not a, that funny anymore, is it? It's not that funny anymore. And I was going to say, it's not, this is purely anecdotal and it's not something that I've done any official polling or research about, but it does feel like even amongst the audiences that were big on those shows or those comics, it just feels like it elicits less of a response now more than ever. Um, to the, the point novelty where the has worn off. Yeah, the novelty has worn off and the fandoms aren't really, they might not be quite as there for it as they used to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong though. Uh, but it, it, you know, just from a cursory look, it does feel like there's less enthusiasm for it now. And people and could I be getting numb to of, it. Yeah, and I think that sort of, sort of subtlety on Joe Casey's part works. Where, like you said, he's not assaulting you with it. Where each page is some sort of gag. Where this dude, uh, where where the info scroll is acting as, you know some sarcastic omnipotent voice that's constantly just making snarky remarks or whatever it it serves a purpose and the humor is just a very minor element to it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah speaking of information overload uh, we mentioned the covers i think the magazine envir- inspired covers are definitely a big part of that right off the get-go like so many times Covers don't really seem to factor into the content of a work in comics. Usually it's just, you know, like a book cover, something to draw your attention. But I think in this case, it does actually contribute something to the overall tone and mood of the series as a whole. Every cover of this, of the Intimates, is something that, you know, it'll take you like a minute to read it because it's got all these words and like you know little jokes and things like that you know the the constant references to how this periodical may have uh, an advertisement every three pages or something like that i forget exactly how they worded it but uh you know there's a design element to them that makes it instantly identifiable um and all the words and blurbs on the cover it really is to uh just bombard us with too much information, mm. information that we don't really need. Yeah. I'd say if you're the kind of person that really wants to get your bang for your buck out of your comic and almost makes it feels like every every element of the book itself is just 
adding to the reading experience, something that acknowledges that and really feeds into that sense. I'd say that the covers here are, are part of that, right? Where even right at the beginning, it gives you a little bit of insight into what's going on in the book. Whereas in a lot of cases, so many books, so many comics and their covers, all they really serve to do is, hey, isn't this a cool picture? And that in and of itself is really its purpose, right? Mm -hmm. But they, you really utilize as much of the book as they can to, to you know, if you're this kind of reader, but to give you just that much more reading material and that much more to think about. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like Drew's that kind of reader, so it makes <laughs> sense to me that he really enjoys that aspect of it where, you know, if I'm going to buy this, I, I better be just gorging myself on what this book is giving me, right? Right. Like even even to the point where reading the cover isn't is is just maybe not integral to the experience, but just adds to the experience beyond just, hey, this is a cool picture. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's not to mean that the more words, the better, because otherwise I'd just be reading Claremont comics all day, right? <laughs> <laughs> Why can't we just leave the old man alone? <laughs> what is wrong with us? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure he's a perfectly fine human being. <laughs> unless he murders our family. Yeah, unless I catch him breaking and entering, then, then yeah. we got a problem. <laughs> Uh. yeah and then what you were saying earlier about the info scrolls um i also wanted to say that yeah they they do so many things for us as the reader because they give us additional insight into the characters and the setting sometimes they comment on the story sometimes they give us random factoids usually those factoids are just made up so there's some recurring ones like little tidbits about uh teen survival tips like how to how teenagers should act in various situations and stuff that are always pretty funny sometimes they'll give yeah. us little bits of information about the the characters like ms miss clanbade is a mysterious teacher and the info scroll kind of feeds into the the questions that the students have about her because they don't know you know her they don't know her, her background her origin Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, sometimes the info scrolls give us ruminations on various topics. Like the one of the summer vacation issues gives us just, yeah, a bunch of thoughts on summer vacation as a concept. And then sometimes they, they do more. Like sometimes they actually tell a story in and of themselves. Like the, again, another one of the summer vacation issues the info scrolls in that entire issue, they tell us the story of Kifong's summer vacation because he doesn't really appear within the narrative of the comic itself. His story is just given to us in prose via the info scrolls. Yeah. I wanted to talk about what you just mentioned a little bit, though, where you talked about one of the issues where the info scroll has this cohesion and it spends a good chunk of it talking about the concept of summer vacation. Mm -hmm. I 
that was something that really jumped out at me because most of the times as I was reading it, most of the info scrolls were, you know, just little bits and bobs of information about this and that to to add to the story to make it a little more real or to add flavor. Flush out. Add flavor, exactly, right? But I do think that when I got to this portion when to, to this particular issue and I was reading that, that was something that took me by surprise, but in a pleasant way, because it it takes it's it's something where the info scroll sticks with it for several pages and talks about summer vacation and how, you know, these are the times of your lives and this is mm -hmm. what we live for. And then it begins to pontificate on the idea of how bizarre it is when you become older you dread the idea of summer vacation because it means that you have to find a way to occupy your kids and how backward <laughs> is that life is that world where you know the idea of getting three months off is something that you dread like what what kind of people have you become right and <laughs> the info scroll is giving it, us an existential crisis it really was it i i thought there's definitely a way to look at it where I could see the humor of it, but at the same time, there was something about what he was saying that that really resonated in me with me in more in more of a way than than any comic where I've seen Electra stab someone through the chest, you know, <laughs> like that really resonated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I I just thought that that particular section was something that, if we're talking about the craft of a comic, that like maybe, I think, on a extra level, uh, on 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 you know outside on on top of the narrative level uh, of whatever is happening in the story, it did add something to the story because it's it runs tangential to to what's actually happening with these kids because the the issue takes place during their summer break and you know we follow these characters we follow these characters and observe what they're doing with their time but to have this commentary to really look back at summer vacation as a whole and just how it changes over time as you age yeah that was that was some, you know, philosophical stuff. I I thought I took it at face value. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. That's good stuff, man. And then the the last issue. That one takes the info info. It uses the info scroll to talk to us about the book's cancellation. So yeah, just throughout the series, the info scroll is used to various effects. And it's a unique feature of the series that adds to the density of the reading experience and adds to the charm of the book. It's pretty unique. I don't think that I've seen anything else like that in too many other comics. Like It's hard for me to think of anything else that would be too comparable. I feel like maybe there was like a Matt Kent comic where every page had some kind of like secret message at the at the bottom uh mm -hmm. 
but we've seen, yeah, he's definitely yeah. one of those writers that tends to play around with that format as well. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. the that final issue, man. You want to read us an excerpt? You want to read us the uh, bit from the info scroll where Joe Casey seems to be writing about the background of the book and the story of its cancellation as well? Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting too because the info scroll has. Like I mentioned earlier, it's kind of stream of consciousness. So there's two or three different things going on within the info scroll. But the very last sentence for each of these info scrolls uh, are Joe Casey, um, as you said, just kind of giving his uh, top down commentary of, I guess, meta commentary about comics and this comic in particular, right? So it's him and he's saying, Anatomy of an intimate idea. What do you do when you want to buck trends and sell books? Answer to the question posed in the info scroll on the previous page. You create a teen superhero book where nothing much is meant to happen. First smart move. Get one of the hottest artists in America to design the lead characters, do covers, etc. To ensure concept longevity and intercompany priority and marketing support. Of course, the writer pushes for a miniseries to test an uncertain, sometimes hostile marketplace, but others assess with more certainty that it should be a full-on monthly series. Gotta love that mind of optimism. Finding an artist, always a risky proposition, but fate smiles and a great one climbs on board. In the All Systems Go department, everything's in place. Despite an interminable development process, the wheels can turn slowly at the big corporations and the launch is good a cult book is born creator chemistry is appreciated if not rewarded but hey some creators are comfortable with their cult status sub imprint blues they have no staying power nor the lure of big characters plus some people just don't know how to stand up straight <laughs> artistic integrity versus the bright and shiny object no contest. My friends, the lunchbox characters almost always win out. Corporate attitude in action. Do what they want when they want and don't allow notions of quote-unquote lasting art to stand in the way. Another cult favorite. Some series aren't meant to sell big, but that doesn't negate their importance, nor does it negate readers' affection for them. Getting sucked in Stretching a miniseries premise into an ongoing concern can be a challenge, especially in the current climate. Credit where credit is due, lack of perspective, and an ignorance of the long-term view kills timelessness every time, and the examples are everywhere. The quality of an original series will always be in direct proportion to the commitment of the creatives involved. The facts of life. Characters live exist on the page and within the imaginations of invested readers. Quality versus quantity. Does a book have to be a hit to be good? And is that the ultimate qualification for commitment to service? Inquiring minds want to know. Foxhole mentality. Inside joke. As the rats jump from the sinking ship, who is left to sail the old girl home? Limping to the finish line, assessing the situation, only certain conclusions end up making sense to retain any sort of creative control. Then it goes, perspective tip 
Time heals all wounds. Not all secrets are revealed and never say never. That's the last one. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. some pretty fascinating commentary about the behind-the-scenes stuff for the book. It's the kind of stuff where I wonder how they let him get away with that. <laughs> yeah. Like, who are the rats? Well, <laughs> I mean, the thing is, at this point, the book was on its last last issue it was in the middle of being canceled i'm pretty sure if he just snuck it in and and especially the way that those info scrolls were written where as i mentioned before it 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 has this stream of consciousness consciousness feel where you have several different voices going on talking about several different things so if someone wasn't astute enough or observant enough it wouldn't surprise me that he was able to just sneak that in and make it sound like oh it's just chatter uh, you know it's, <laughs> it's just the 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 you know the the voice of god being irreverent or whatever <laughs> but it's pretty revealing it's almost like a puzzle right where on its own some of these bits and pieces might seem pretty innocuous but when you read it like that uh combined it's maybe not quite a manifesto, but it does reveal quite a lot of what his thoughts and feelings are in this period of time. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of the stuff he was saying about like creative control and or the you know it's that art versus commerce argument that that's so <laughs> relevant to superhero comics because most people who write superhero comics or make superhero comics, I think they just want to make a cool comic, you know, like yeah. it's as simple as that. They just want to do something that people will like and entertain people. But every so yeah. often yeah. we get these creators who actually want to do something challenging and who want to do something new and creative that isn't normally done within the genre. You know, like they, they want to take superheroes and, without i mean i guess it's going to sound pretentious but they just want to make art right and yeah yeah it's those are the books that are always interesting and fascinating but they usually just end up getting canceled before their time yeah 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 you're you're right and it's unfortunate right because in the business or or the field of comics we have so many spider-mans and so many batmans that it's it's the that corporate ethos taking place where what do you do once you have this ip that is so successful well you don't want to rock the boat because if you do you you end up tanking this multi-billion dollar property right mm -hmm. so we just have to find ways of making people think it's something different without actually challenging them to to be different. And, and at one point, one of the info scrolls actually even says that, I think. And um, yeah, there, there's that one bit where it talks about how corporate mentality wins every time, right? Yep, yep. And, and he's absolutely right. And on the few occasions where we get creative successes in comics what ends up happening is 
what we end up seeing is really those works just being drowned out by again by the fanboys who just who just want to see more comics right so you you get something like v for vendetta which is uh you know something completely unlike any comic we've ever seen and all it gets turned into is a bunch of guy fox masks yeah yeah um we we get something like watchmen and like all people can really focus on is hey wasn't the big blue naked guy really cool (laughs) wasn't warshack cool because he right it's you, you want to believe that art is for everyone and that people will rise to the challenge when it's presented to them but sometimes comic book fans especially can be very disheartening <laughs> yeah definitely definitely yeah and speaking of watchmen i mean that's instead of uh you know taking a lesson from watchmen people just dc just ends up making more watchmen sequels and stuff you know or prequels yeah. before yeah. watchmen and then all that doomsday clock garbage it's like yeah not even important to them what alan moore's desires are you know like yeah if if they could rape his corpse to make a quarter they would do it you know <laughs> Oof. rough I'm pretty curious about the stuff that Casey wrote in those info scrolls, especially towards the end there when he's it, the tone starts to get a little harsher. Um, Cause it, it does feel like some pretty harsh criticism of DC. And yeah, from what I, from what I remember uh, and even just, you know, glancing at his bibliography, this was the last Wildstorm and the last DC book he did for a few years. And then even, even after this, I think he only did like two other DC books and he got fired from one of them. So like he hasn't really had to go back to DC obviously because he's got other things going on with yeah. Ben 10 and man of action. So he's, he's totally fine, but I did notice, you know, it just made, made me wonder if like he started to burn some bridges with, with what he put in the comic, but it, you know, it's, it's again, it's surprising that, somebody you know didn't flag his comments there and they're just like oh, okay it's part of the comic you know you can you can print that <laughs> you know it's okay yeah i mean it's also if, if you told me that he was blacklisted that wouldn't surprise me but comics as an industry is pretty cruel towards its creative people nonetheless so even if it was a matter of just well we were done with his services there was nothing more that we wanted or needed from him that wouldn't yeah. surprise me either. On some level, that might even be more cruel. <laughs> yeah, because uh, this comic was late 2005, and I think uh, he he did an Infinite Crisis tie-in called, not Infinite Crisis, a uh, Final Crisis tie-in called Dance, which was about the super young team, another yeah teen superhero book that that's pretty different from the Intimates, but also still different from your typical teen superhero book but he did that miniseries around the time of final crisis and then maybe a year after that uh he did a a batman superman arc or was it superman batman i forget which name comes first but 
he did that story um, where they branded it as a sequel to or an epilogue to Our Worlds at War. <laughs> Do you remember that one? Okay. I vaguely remember that because it's something that happened years after World, Our Worlds at War came out. Yeah, so Our Worlds at War was a Superman story, like a, a Superman crossover that affected the DC Universe, or I guess an event comic from like the, what, the early 2000s? Maybe like 2001 yeah, or something? Right. Yeah. And then this Superman-Batman comic comes out at least like eight years later, if not nine or ten, and it's got this branding for Our Worlds at War on the cover, but... From what I remember reading interviews at the time, Casey was pretty harsh in in criticizing DC in interviews. He said that it was stupid for them to put the branding on it because he didn't realize they were going to do that. Because in his mind, even though, yeah, he worked on the original Our Worlds at War and he wrote this story as kind of a, not an explicit follow-up to it because he said, like, basically, it just takes place in the aftermath of a big war. So for all you know, it could have been after the Black Lanterns. <laughs> yeah, it could have been any comic book war. Right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But then DC slapped this Our Worlds at War uh, branding on it. And he, he just mocked it in an interview, maybe even multiple interviews. And they ended up firing him from the last couple issues. So if you look at yeah. those last couple issues of that story, it just says that uh, it was they were plotted by by uh, Joe Casey and I think like Joshua Williamson or somebody scripted them. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that that yeah. was the last time he's done work for DC, I think. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure. It's just such a weird move. It, it it's so stupid where again, this event happened like 8 years ago and this is the thing we're going to tie it to. It's it's just <laughs> And I'm pretty sure it was an event that nobody really cared about. When it, yeah. like i didn't feel like it was a big event when it came out it's certainly not up there in their uh list of evergreen dc events but yeah it's, would, it's so would bizarre. you buy an our worlds at war omnibus uh if it was like 90 percent off <laughs> <laughs> would you rather read our worlds at war or the Evolutionary War. Ooh, I'd probably rather read Our Worlds at War over our uh, over the Evolutionary War. Even even though I do have love for High Evolutionary, I yeah I can't. That uh, <laughs> yeah I don't I don't I definitely don't think that that's a comic that's aged well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Anything else about the craft, or you want to move on to originality? Uh, just to reiterate what I was saying earlier about the art, I would want to say that Kamen Coley's art captures the usefulness of the setting, of the teenage superhero setting. I think he does a good job also with capturing various angsty teenage moments, like the melodrama when MTV thinks that Punchy is interested in her. Like there's a lot of stuff he does with the facial expressions that I think is good storytelling. A lot of the random background characters and the scenes in the seminary are pretty good with his varied uh, costume designs and things like that. Um, 
the moments that we do get action or kind of more spectacular scenes, he does a good job with those too. I'm thinking particularly of something like issue six where things get kind of trippy and psychedelic. And then you have that heroic moment at the end when Kifong is the one who's able to fix Sykes's null shield or null field. So yeah, his, his art's pretty good stuff, man. It's, I think it, works even better because it's it because the stories are so subversive because when you just look at the art it makes you think that you're reading a regular run-of-the-mill superhero comic but uh, that's only if you just glance at the pictures when you actually read the story it's pretty clear that the stories are less concerned with your typical super-powered fisticuffs and more interested in the inner lives of the various teenagers yeah yeah but of course the problem is that the art gets really bad after he leaves yeah i mean it's it's kind of the the casey curse at this point is he he cultivates talent and like you said uh once once the the wrong people in this case get a, a hold of that he he ends up being the one who loses out right yeah. I mean, part of me wonders if that comment in the info scrolls about the rats jumping ship, I wonder if that was, if he was talking about coming cold on that one, or if he was just talking about executives who decided to cancel the series or, you know, pull his artist off the book. Yeah. Just, yeah. I just mean, a lot of it wouldn't surprise fodder. me if it was both, right? Yeah. Like, it's. Uh, I mean, it's a tough business, and I understand that people shouldn't take things too personally. Um, but at the same time, I also understand that it's it, frustrating it's tough when you have a vision. Yeah, exactly. When you have a vision and you're not able to see it through because, um, you know, the people that are supposedly supposed to be helping you end up being the the vultures that scavenge your your corpse yeah uh, you know at the first sign of opportunity for them right yeah so. or it could just it could even just be they lose interest and they abandon yeah they abandon yeah. ship you know like i think about yeah again jim lee right like his whole thing was uh or part of the big sell was him being involved in creating the team and doing these covers but how many covers did he actually do man like and after you get to a certain point, he doesn't even draw the comic within the comic anymore. So clearly yeah. he lost interest in the book. Yeah. Like you telling me and that he's... he was so busy with whatever he was doing in 2005 that he couldn't take the time to draw one panel for the intimates. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. 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 I mean, he's <sighs> Again, this is a thing where he's the at this point, he's like the, I don't know what the term is, like president of the company or CEO or whatever, right? It's So theoretically, any book that has his branding is one that he would want to see succeed because, you know, that's what a good manager or boss does, right? They want you to succeed because your success is their success. They understand that. But if his entire uh, mentality is, I'm bored of this or I'm not even going to really commit to I'm not even going to fully commit to this 
the in the first instance where it gets difficult i'm i'm just willing to uh separate myself from it i mean if that's the case then you know how's how's anyone supposed to feel like you're loyal to them or that you have their back or any of it right mm -hmm. so yeah 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 before we move on from discussing the craft there were a couple of issue there were a couple issues that i would want to talk about just as highlights of the series sure shoot so first of all issue one it's really about nothing in particular in terms of plot uh, i was saying earlier that it's just a bunch of short scenes that constantly jump around to introduce us to the various students and faculty of the seminary but i do like how that first issue helps establish the slice of life feeling to the book it's, it's very slice of life but in a way it's like we're getting many slices of many different lives or I, I guess you could even say it's a slice of life of the school itself i do like how the first issue establishes that right off the bat it's for an issue where you know quote unquote nothing happens i do think it does a really good job of just grabbing your attention and letting you know right off the bat what the tone of the book is and what it's going to be like you know it's immediately something different it's more concerned about the teenagers than it is about the superheroic aspect mm. did you have any thoughts about that first issue in particular i think most of my thoughts are more on the macro side of it so again i i went into this book not really knowing much of anything about it so i think my expectation was that yeah we were going to get some sort of superheroics plot and story but uh, i think quickly i began to realize and notice the slice of life elements that you were talking about um i think i think personally if i had if it had been a different artist other than common coley if it had been more i guess indie uh you know like I, I was thinking of something like demo or something like that where you tell a story about super people but they're not in costumes or anything like that and it's really not about the powers as much as it is about what the powers reveal about them and so it's got a very indie look to it it's a it's a brian wood comic um, yeah becky clunan art and Becky Clunan art, right? And the thing is, I think if if it had had that art, I would have been more prepared to accept or to to expect it, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But I, like you said, the the subversive element of it is that it's meant to be. It's meant to look like a standard comic so so that it lulls you the reader into um a sense of security i guess right yeah so that when it's time for you to get exposed to this completely other thing that you weren't expecting it, it comes as a pleasant surprise almost and i think that experience i i do think that i i did experience that because for those first issues you're just waiting or i'm waiting for something to happen you kind of expect 
oh, um, what what kind of plot are they going to roll out? Uh, what are who are these kids gonna fight? Right? What's what's the villain? This or that? Right? Someone's gonna attack the school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's exactly. got to band together. Oh, there's yeah. there's somebody who's putting substances in the food they're eating to control them or keep them docile. Yeah. <laughs> They've got to go after yeah. these people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but that's the funny thing. Like uh, in one of the info scrolls I was reading, they talk about how, uh, you know, the the trick that they were trying to pull off was a book where nothing happens, mm-hmm. and that's the intention of it, right? Mm-hmm. And when you go into it with that understanding it, it it does a lot to change your outlook on what you're reading because again like if, if i went into this thinking um oh this is they're gonna fight like apocalypse or something and <laughs> i don't get that I, I can imagine a lot of people looking at that and being kind of uh disappointed or upset or whatever right yeah but but once you get past that and you realize, oh, this is really this is really just a story about these kids being teenagers and mm-hmm. it's about um, you know it they just happen to have superpowers, right? The the window dressing is that they have these superpowers, but the the core of it is that they're teenagers just like anybody else and they're going through things that all teenagers go through which is you know angst and uh a lot of awkwardness insecurity and awkwardness and just trying to find your place in the world being exactly right so outside of that it i do think that joe casey did a pretty great job in in those first six issues of just following the minor dramas of their life and and that's the thing about you know being in high school too is for adults that's minor drama but for them it's the worst most uh painful tragedy of their lives right yeah um and and it 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 totally uh it it communicates you see that uh there's that scene where uh mtv is you know she's she's chatting with punchy and she 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 gets a message back uh because uh the other girl what's her name destra uh, destra destra sends him a message and he he on, on on her phone on mtv's phone and punchy responds back and uh he's like hey let's meet up so she's super excited she goes out there to to meet him and she's feeling confident, but when she gets there, he just totally dresses her down, you know. And yeah, he's a jerk about it. He's a he's a jerk about it, and it's it's a bad situation. And but it's not something that I don't I wouldn't believe happens in real life because teens are cruel. They're cruel dicks, you know. They are, man. Uh, they are. Yeah. And like, you know, the ecosystem of a teenager is just a a. It's not a prison or anything, but it is a, a tough place for your self-esteem, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, um, the one thing I, I did like about that entire story arc was watching MTV. And, and the thing about her is her because her natural state is her invisibility and it requires a lot of concentration for her to manifest or to be visible, mm-hmm. um, the way 
and and I might be interpreting this scene wrong, but the way that they uh, play that scene out is when she begins to think that Punchy is into her, she gets like really confident and all of a sudden she's pretty visible with ease, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's that sense that, oh, a guy like likes me back and it uplifts her. And when she uh, confesses to him and he sees that he's, it's her and he's just super cruel about it. That last scene is her like crying as she just fades into nothing. It's a pretty well done scene. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was, was that issue three? I have it in front of me. I'd have to search. Give me a sec. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember. It's all good. Yeah. That was definitely one of the more memorable subplots in the series. It's like really good character yeah. writing. Yeah. And a lot of the subplots, again, like if you go into it expecting something big, you don't really get that because a lot of the subplots are pretty random things like, oh, Duke is Duke has diarrhea and yeah. he's taking uh <laughs> no no he's, uh, he's taking suppositories. He's constipated, you're right. He's constipated and he needs suppositories. That's a plot in this story, you know? <laughs> like it's it's if if the ethos of the book is to make a story about things that don't happen and make that the focal point of it, like nothing says that more than having one of the plot points be, hey, this guy's got a medical ailment and it's it's not like uh, a cancer or anything like that. He's just uh, constipated. <laughs> you know, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, and and it really just t- brings home the fact that these are stories about just people living their lives mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another highlight for me was issue six this was the sykes issue it's the one where destra i guess manipulates everybody into helping her and or at least mtv into um turning off the null field around sykes's head but once that happens Everybody just tumbles into this psychedelic dreamscape. Uh, and it's, it's one of those things where it makes you wonder how much of what the kids see are products of their own imagination or are they Sykes' memories. It's an issue where the through line isn't immediately evident and it actually takes some thought to interpret. We also learn about the other kids' thoughts. For example, Punchy secretly wanted dead kid Fred to kill himself to give Punchy's heroic backstory a tragic origin so dead kid fred was this zombie teenager sidekick guy who uh in the in a previous issue he was having uh extreme depression and thought suicidal thoughts and in in one of the rare stories where punchy seems to like do something want to be good, good do, yeah exactly yeah. like do something good he's he's concerned about this kid because he, he reads this kid's blog and he thinks that this kid is going to kill himself. So he's like super concerned that this is going to happen. He's trying to like stop the guy from doing it. So then when we get to this issue, we learn that actually all that work that he was doing to try and save this kid's life, secretly deep down, he wanted the guy to kill himself. <laughs> so then it would be like, I tried so hard to do what I could to save him, but I couldn't. <laughs> because every hero needs a tragic backstory. Yeah, yeah. It's the, uh, but that's also pretty telling of 
of teenagers, right? It's it's mm-hmm. a matter of their priorities, right? And uh, as much as well, okay, I, I was just gonna say, yeah, if if the idea is that we're writing believable teenagers, that absolutely makes sense because what matters to him is his image more than what's right, right? His priority mm-hmm. is how he ends up looking when this is all over, as opposed to, you know, someone almost killed themselves. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have Duke in that issue. He has a some kind of breakdown and he confesses to having really dark thoughts and lots of fears and insecurities about being a hero. And at first it doesn't seem like that's too big of a deal. Like every kid has those kinds of feelings probably, oh. or a lot of kids do. But then later on when they, when we get to summer vacation and we see what he's up to during his vacation. Yeah. You can see that these kind of core fundamental fears that he has really mess him up when he's like trying to do superhero stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All the, all these little details that just kind of like lay the groundwork or seed things for later issues or help us recontextualize the previous issues. It's all really fascinating stuff. And issue six is also pretty experimental, I think, because it tells us this pretty heavy story about Sykes's origin without making it entirely clear what's quote unquote real or not. Because Sykes is the most mysterious character in the series, but even after all the revelations within this issue, he still feels like the most mysterious character. It's kind of an impressive feat. Like, yeah, they explain some stuff, but they don't explain everything. And the issue requires the reader to actively participate and think about what's being presented on the page. Just a really great example of nonlinear storytelling. Like yeah. even little details, like how the info scroll is destroyed when Sykes's null field is deactivated. It just adds to the immersion of it. Yeah, yeah. And that issue in particular was one that was, it's not especially dense, but it's pretty interesting to observe and look at. And I will admit that, you know, even talking about it now in, in the rear view, it's something where I'm still not entirely sure what I read because there were revelations there about his his background, about his origin. But yeah, it, it it's it's not something that's made abundantly clear. Yeah, like mm-hmm. I really have to sit and think about it. And, and I'd even say that it wasn't until I read the the issues later where I was like, oh, okay, that's what I was looking at, you know? Yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. when this issue came out, this was one of the issues that uh, people on this message board I used to go to, we were we were trying to break it down and like really talk about it, you know, because it, it was just so clever and interesting and uh, maybe not dense in terms of having many words or anything, but it was dense uh-huh. storytelling because it was nonlinear and there were things that just kind of go unexplained. Like it's not explicitly uh, broken down for you. Like, feed you. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. spoon feed you. Exactly. Exactly. So it was, it's a, it was a fun comic to, to talk about on message boards back in 2005. 
Yeah, yeah. I could I can see that. The uh, final issue that I want to talk about in terms of a highlight is the last issue, the final issue, number 12. You already shared the excerpt from the info scrolls earlier, but this is the last issue, man. And it's uh, even in one of the other info scroll tidbits, uh, it mentions that it's the Kafka gambit, you know, being a reference to automatic Kafka and uh the story in issue 12 feels like it's centered around showing off this cyclical nature of superhero stories and how that can definitely be a weakness of the genre. So like, I think towards the end of the issue, the info scroll it might be like right before the last page. Actually, I think one of the bits on the info scroll says, turn the page for something that's truly rare in comics and ending, you know, <laughs> like, an ending is just such a rare thing. Um, I remember this quote from Brian K. Vaughn, and he once said that endings give stories their meaning. I think that's, I definitely agree with that. When you read yeah, a ton of superhero yeah. comics, it is rare to get an ending. Maybe you'll get an ending to a certain creative team's run, or when a writer is done uh, with his last issue, you'll get an ending of sorts at that point, but it it's rare that you get an ending a to definitive ending. a definitive ending to a series. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. at the end of the day, what ends up happening is the next creative team takes over and there's a reset. And, you know, it, it's it's that sense for that sense that the really worst kinds of uh, fanboys where all these stories are just one never-ending, ongoing collective history of this character. Yeah. And they just consume it into infinity, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's kind of what that's kind of the experience that these corporate comics are are trying to sell you is this. You know, if it was a TV show, it'd be a TV show that just never ends. It, it'd be that uh, Chat GPT Seinfeld show that they were talking about, where <laughs> you know years after the fact it's lost some of its luster or that original luster that drew so much attention to it and now you're just kind of going on autopilot yeah i didn't hear about that chat gpt thing but you just mentioning it right now it gives me a perfect idea of something i don't want to ever see <laughs> yeah i mean that's kind of the the world that we're living in now uh, the way that they've talked about it and how they're going to try to let me put it this way if these companies if they could get rid of writers and do a serviceable yeah. job with an ai they would do it in a heartbeat i have no doubt in my mind that they would do it in a heartbeat yeah they would they would save yeah. so much money not hiring a person and then they could they could try to I bet you they would even, those executives would even try to sell it like, this is a new experiment in storytelling. You're going to love it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, they're bastards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Issue 12, the story, one of the subplots in the issue is that Punchy's favorite comic, Supersonic Espionage Boom, is getting canceled so you get this sort of parallel 
story where he's freaking out that his favorite comic is getting canceled at issue 988, I believe. So, you know, I guess with the 12 issues of The Intimates, that's a thousand. But during the course of the comic, you get a couple panels of the comic within the comic. So you get some panels from the spy comic, which give us some direct allusions to other famous superhero stories that have uh, some pretty famous endings. Like like Watchmen, you get somebody quoting, I did it 35 minutes ago. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And then there's one where... Uh, you get a quotation from Dark Knight Returns where the guy's like, this would be a good death, not good enough. And then you get another one where he's quoting from the last issue of Frank Miller's run on Daredevil. When it comes to that one final fatal act of ending you, my gun has no bullets. So mm. it's, it's pretty interesting to me to see that they ended up you know, pulling a couple of things from famous superhero stories to i don't know make some kind of comment about endings because like with watchmen you have a book that has an ending you know i'm not i'm totally ignoring doomsday clock and everything else <laughs> you know but right, watchmen right. is complete in and of itself and and that has an ending and then you have a book like dark knight returns which even though it's a batman book there are going to be more batman comics and even at this point there was already a sequel to The Dark Knight Returns. At the time, Several it felt, sequels. Yeah. <laughs> at the time, it felt like Dark Knight Returns w- could function as an, you know, theoretically as an ending for the Batman character. You know, like that was Batman, the end. And then with that Daredevil issue, that goes back to what we were just saying about how, you know, you, when a writer ends his run, he, he you know, he leaves his mark on it. And then... Uh, next month, somebody else writes Daredevil issue 192 or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think issue 12 here is one of the best final issues of a canceled series. It's right up there with Automatic Kafka number 9. The issue is just replete with this meta-commentary within the narrative about launching a new superhero comic and then canceling it. There's even this moment where Casey's dialogue makes a mockery of the bad artwork. You remember that scene when the <laughs> kids are crawling through uh, an air duct and then they're just floating yeah, heads? Yeah, yeah. And then MTV. They're like, why like, are we heads? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and then Punch replies, take a wild guess. <laughs> it's one of those things where I assume that Joe Casey altered the dialogue after he saw the final art. Yeah. Maybe it's possible that this was all calculated in his script. Maybe he, this is what he told the artist to draw. I kind of doubt it. It feels like, it really feels like Casey saw the page and he was like, okay, I got to change my dialogue. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's some good stuff, man. You got anything else about the craft or you want to move on to originality? We can go ahead and talk about the originality. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that it, on on the face of it, it doesn't really sound like a very uh, original concept. You know, kids, it's super kids in high school, right? Like uh, when you look at it from a surface level, uh, I mean, from a purely superficial level, that's what it feels like. But for him to do this story that really emphasizes the 
the lives of these kids. I do think there's something pretty original in that. And, Mm -hmm. and it's just all throughout the comic. So much of all the elements are done in a way to differentiate it from all the comics that have come before. Right. It's, it's pretty self-aware that, oh, we've seen superhero comics before about teenagers, but, you know, we really want to emphasize the teenager part. And we also want to really go out of the way to present it in a way that's different. That's why we have these info scrolls. Um, Yeah, like, so I do feel like what we've discussed in craft does cover a lot of it Mm -hmm. and there is something deceptively simple about the book but again this being my first time reading it um it, it becomes apparent fairly quickly especially if you're open to it that you're not gonna get what you expect out of this book so yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. I, I definitely agree it's a it's a mix of experimental storytelling and mainstream appeal. I think the yeah. intentionally calculated concessions to mainstream appeal are pretty, you know, obviously put out there for us with Jim Lee designing it, designing the characters, drawing some covers, a couple panels here and there. There's uh-huh. the teen superhero stuff that's full of relationship drama on the surface. And of course yeah. the info scroll and how it, affects the reading experience then we have issues that i think do try to do some experimental approaches to storytelling like issue six uh mentioned earlier and then the stuff uh in issue 12 those are probably the two standouts for me and overall the series was also much denser than your average superhero comic Partly that's due to the info scrolls, but I also think it was because of how fast we move from scene to scene. Because it's not unusual for the intimates to have three or four scenes per page. And as a result, it's a book that really does require your attention. You got to kind of concentrate to, you know, catch everything. Yeah, yeah. As another Casey book. Oh, what were you going to say? No, 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 go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, yeah, like, it's intentionally subversive, man. Like, it it looks like it could be another action-oriented comic, like your Teen Titans, New Mutants, what, Young Avengers, Young Justice, Generation X, Gen 13. (laughs) (laughs) You know, all of that stuff, um, you know, Common Coley's artwork and the Jim Lee designs. They all sell the traditional idea of of a cape comic, but it's just far less concerned with action and more interested in exploring the private lives of teens in a superhero school. So it's more about, even though it's a teen superhero comic, it's more of a teen comic, I would say, because that's got more of the emphasis. There's something potentially uh thematic about the idea of these teen superhero stories exploring like their notions of identity and 
coming to self-actualization. Because I guess when you consider superheroes and teenagers as separate groups, like those are two groups that have a lot of identity issues in general whenever you read any kind of fiction about them. So to kind of put them together and then really, you know, double down on it is pretty fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. Like even the action that is in the book and towards the end we have that whole Devonshire foods plot. Like all of that stuff is yeah. downplayed in favor of the characters' drama. Like all of the various relationships that they have with one another, all the weird insecurities and awkward feelings that they have deep down in inside internally. Hmm. Yeah. Like even you know, in in reference to that Devonshire food situation, they they tease it out throughout the last half of the book that, oh, what are they feeding these kids and what what's going on? What what's the secret plot behind this whole thing? But really, by the time you get to the end of it, they don't even tell you what it is, and you're really just watching these kids rebel against these adults. And for all we know, they might not even have a reason to, other than <laughs> You know, because they, they're rebellious they kids. Be, yeah, exactly. They might not actually have a, a reason to because they don't even confirm really what this uh, plot is, right? So mm-hmm. at, at one point, um, I think Duke is, is freaking out because he says, "Oh, that's what I was eating, and I'm glad you told me about it." And but you, as the reader, get none of that information, you know. Um, and, and again, it's just really done to, for the effect of emphasis, which is to let you know that, Hey, this isn't the A plot of the story. What what we're really watching is these kids as they're, um, interacting with each other and being with each other. And, um, you know, I'd even say very early on, as I was reading it, I, I did get the sense that this was a story about teenagers coming into their own. But as I read more of it, I I really felt like there was a lot going on in terms of what Joe Casey was trying to cover. So it wasn't just, even though it was a story about these teenagers uh, going through their teenage problems and learning to be okay with themselves, there's also, I think, elements of it that look at youth as as almost an allegory for or or it looks at these teenagers as an allegory for um i guess i don't know how to describe it but like art in youth right mm-hmm. it's the idea of well art can only go on for so long but art only works if it's able if if it does not become stagnant right Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of talk throughout the book of these kids talking about um what it means to be superhero and why we need to do it the way that our parents did it and it's it's applying that if you apply that logic to to art you you can see that there's a thinly veiled statement about art and comics here right uh it's and, and we've talked about this in this podcast in, in several different ways where um, 
uh, like on on more than one occasion where we talk about how uh i mean heck even earlier on in this episode we talked about how the 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 corporate entities make a business of selling you what is safe and what is secure and what is conventional because that's their bread and butter right yeah but there's no real incentive to take a chance on anything and and really it feels like on the occasions where someone quote unquote takes a chance on something and something different happens then they there's this sense that oh we're claiming credit for this because hey uh you know it worked but realistically mm-hmm. there's they they have to be dragged kicking and screaming to the point where they try something different and that's that's a notion i definitely see amongst artists in all different various fields um when they're trying to create these stories whether it's comics or tv or whatever you know mhm mhm um yeah so there it, there is a sense that Although this is a story about these teenagers, it's also saying something about art and what it means to have that spirit of nonconformity and rebelliousness when when creating art, you know? Mm-hmm. There's this one scene that I took a picture of, and I think it's in the last issue of the book, but it's the kids coming back from summer break, and it's I think it's like their principal talking to them, and he's he he has this comment on this on the face of it, it seems very innocuous, but he says, "I'll take it you've all uploaded your new class schedules to your handhelds, and you'll be all and you'll all be pleased to know that that there have been no significant design changes to the sem- seminary. We believe in strict continuity here." artist aside we are just as you left us you know <laughs> that's that's yep. a pretty that's a pretty big wink and a nod to to the idea of what comics are about uh especially at the big 2 you know what, what especially uh what their idea of innovation and changes which is well we're going to give you the exact same car but guess what this one's this one's red you know <laughs> makes it, all it really the difference feel, yeah like you've never had a red car before uh, see we're innovating that's that's what makes us geniuses we're titans <laughs> of industry you know yeah <laughs> yeah so i do think that that we we talked about how meta commentary or the the the, the tool or the device of meta commentary in and of itself isn't necessarily something original in this book, or I mean, not original in this book, but original in comics. But the problem is, in so many comics, it's used for just such cheap effect for, yeah. for cheap gags. Whereas this comic actually uses meta commentary to make a statement about the medium itself, and there aren't really too many comics that are bold enough to take a stance on that because hey at the end of the day you know you're paying us to you're paying our bills right and why rock the boat yeah and even in the instances when the meta commentary is used to you know provide a laugh it it's actually pretty funny like that last issue i keep thinking back to that panel where 
where the adult is about to press the uh, cancel button. <laughs> and then yeah. Punky's like, yeah. not the cancel button. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's pretty on the nose, but it's funny. <laughs> exactly. One of the uh. other things that I wanted to mention about the book is how it works as a response to the Ultimates. I remember right around the time that the book was launched, uh, there's a there there was a quote from Casey where he mentioned um, that he wanted to create the antithesis of Marvel's Ultimate line. So for him, the opposite of Ultimate is Intimate. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I hadn't was... considered that, but now that mm-hmm. I now that you mention it, that's that's pretty great. <laughs> Yeah, so mm-hmm. I was I was thinking about how with with that idea, um, like what what is the real difference between the ult something like the Ultimate books and something like the Intimates? So I I'm thinking about specifically about uh, the Mark Miller Brian Hitch Ultimates because that was a comic that was known for taking the decompressed storytelling of the Authority into wider popularity. But the Intimates as a series went the other way. Instead of going for decompressed storytelling, it went into compressed storytelling. Like that's the Mm -hmm. kind of storytelling that the Intimates treads in. So in that way, I I feel like this book is in conversation with the Ultimates. Like, so not only is the title a reference to it, but uh, like in terms of ideological approach and execution, because when you look at the Ultimates, we're sort of kept at, arm's length from really knowing the characters it's more about the spectacle and the action of the series mm. whereas in the in the intimates we learn we often learn more than what we want to know about these teens like do we really need to know that duke has constipation probably not but <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know that's the kind of information that we get about them so it's right, right. you know it's all about the title the intimates isn't really the name of a superhero team formed by our cast to fight off a foe that no single hero could defeat. It's more of a reference to how these slice of life elements give us an intimate look at teenage life. So yeah, superheroes and teenagers, man, we already said they're these two groups with identity issues and we get a very close look at these characters' lives internally and externally, learning all about their identity crises uh within the story <laughs> right 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 and you know i w- I just want to go back to that qu- uh that that bit that we read earlier um when joe casey is talking about his comic and you know this is the last issue so he's just kind of inserting into the comic his commentary on essentially what are his thoughts on this series as it comes to a close. And mm-hmm. he talks about how, what's, what's the trick to, to making the intimates work. And I do really think that this one, that one reveal, that one revealing bit of dialogue is, is really huge uh, to, uh, to, to the intimates and what makes it original and different, which is um, when he says, Making a comic where it seems like something is about to happen, but really 
making nothing happen and making that be the comic right mm -hmm. uh, like i i'm i don't think i'm quoting it exactly but um in in essence that's that's what he's saying and i just think that as it might sound like some sort of college writing class exercise but <laughs> we've really never seen anything like that uh the idea of well we're not we're going to de-emphasize and not focus on who these kids are fighting or the dangers in their life and really just make it about you know for the better lack of a word nothing right or or, or not not the things that we are teasing out uh, all the plot points and uh yeah um you know all the spectacle and whatever that's that's really not the emphasis at all yeah because i think most audiences when it comes to stories most people gravitate towards plots and towards characters yeah. with character development like that's pretty conventional yeah. right but yeah it's how we've as, been fed stories for centuries yeah it's but just things happening a to b to c mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i agree but there's also a case to be made because there's a case to be made for stories that work on that operate on different wavelengths as well especially when you look at stuff written within the past hundred years or so um you know with stuff like the rise of the postmodern novel and uh you know james joyce and ulysses for example and, and things like that where plot doesn't really need to be the folk the central focus of a story you know yeah yeah. And even if we move away from, you know, classic literature or modern literature or whatever you want to call it, just yeah. other comics, there are there are comics that do focus on telling slice of life stories. Like the the big American example I think of is American Splendor. Like that that's a pretty big one. You mentioned Demo earlier on. Like that's another good example. Uh, mm -hmm. But I feel like so many of my other examples of slice of life stories in comics would be manga. Like that's something that I, th I think we see quite a bit of. And like, it, it just shows you that not all stories need to be centered around these really long, complicated plots or battles against good and evil. Like you can tell stories about daily yeah. life and have them still be compelling, exactly. still have them be meaningful in, in a exactly. lot of ways, they're more meaningful and more potent because they're actually about real life. Exactly, exactly. Real emotions. I, I, I just had a thought, which was, I feel like we're in this age now where there are, are a lot of these comic fans, people who consider themselves, quote unquote, real comic fans. And a lot of their anger towards comics comes from this place where um you know real stories have to have they, they have to be meant for it almost feels like they're saying comics have to be meant for adults right because um you know we we don't have a dark knight's returns or a Zack snyder unless we <laughs> unless we tell these stories where um these characters do quote unquote adult things, right? Because I'm not here for kids stuff, but but then 
if you really challenge them and say, okay, let's treat comics seriously. Let's treat the medium of comics as something serious and mm-hmm. literary and really do something with it to show that, okay, comics can really be adult and you give them something that is introspective and observational and that has something to say about anything uh, other than do you think superman would be able to punch doomsday through the face if he (laughs) flew at him at the speed of light do you (laughs) you know like if if that's you know if that's what we take to mean as being adult or mature um the, the the second that we present that kind of comic to them <laughs> like all of a sudden that's there's no interest in that because that's not what I meant when I said adult I meant boobs and punching <laughs> you know yeah. right it's it's the most shallow kind of adult that a comic can be um yeah i it, it's it's so lacking in self-awareness and, and again these are straw straw men but there are uh uh mouth breathers that exist out there that i'm sure would have zero sense of interest in these kinds of stories because again uh, uh you know, when we say adult what what they're thinking is you know triple x when what we're thinking is hey what do complex emotions and feelings look like when yeah. presented th- through the prism of superheroes? Yeah, exactly. And we do know those yeah. people exist. We see them online all the time. And I'm pretty sure yeah. we've met somebody like that at a comic book store before. Yeah, certainly. Let, let, let me just put it this way. Um, this book is not for anyone who's a fan of Injustice. if you like injustice uh, i'm gonna save your time right now this probably isn't for you (laughs) i do have anybody you don't you don't think there's a cross-section of people who can enjoy both i bet there is i bet there is i mean i don't know if i'd be able to stomach them but i I bet they exist (laughs) (laughs) if you like injustice I've got some nice coloring books for you. (laughs) (laughs) You can give them adult coloring books. (laughs) There we go. There we go. (laughs) All right, Drew. You ready to talk about the impact that the Intimates left on the industry or whatever sort of impact it might or might not have had? I think it left almost no impact whatsoever. I mean... The book's original artist didn't even stick with it the whole way through, and the series was canceled after a year. It's yeah. not something that's ever been collected into a trade paperback, let alone a hardcover. So I don't really th- think it left much of an impact. Although at the time it was releasing, I do think that it was a comic that people, some of us online at least, talked about and analyzed and from what i remember it did get a decent amount of critical acclaim and respect from other pros yeah. but it, it just didn't sell so if you weren't reading it back then or if you just got into comics within the past 10 or 15 years chances are that you've never even heard of the intimates yeah. dc doesn't care about this book and they don't expect anyone else to care either 
Yeah, I was going to say, when I looked up the Wikipedia page, it did mention that it was a book that got critical acclaim when it came out, but ultimately, low sales numbers just just were ended up being the end of it. Yep. And comics as an industry is sort of like a fire hose. Have you ever heard of that term of like when when referred to like information uh, overload, uh, just fire hosing? So you're saying just in the sense that there's a constant stream of comics being poured out at us. So it's hard for a good one to stick around. Uh, almost. So I think in newspeak and in politics, when when they refer to fire hosing, what they're talking about is when you have a person that is a liar, but they just lie so much and they just say so much outrageous stuff. If they were to pull a Kanye, let's say, and just every every day, every other minute is just some new crazy thing. After a while, you kind of lose track of what's what's what, right? Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're just overwhelmed with just so much garbage coming out. So, you know, it's this mix of outrageous truth with outrageous lies. And it gets to a point where you don't really necessarily know what's real and what's fake. And hopefully for the person who's putting all this out into the world, if they're lucky, then the worst of what they say just kind of gets overshadowed by the fake stuff, right? Yeah. But comics works in that sense as well, in that, like you said, there's just this constant stream of stuff coming out. And, you know, for your average person, it's just so much that their capacity to find what's good and their capacity to attach themselves to what's uttered crap, like... It's far too easy to, to, to find crap and far too hard to find good comics, mm. essentially. So, yeah. So, yeah, like if, if you look at Intimates along with its contemporaries of the time, and that was a period of time where, like you were saying, Wildstorm was just putting out a lot of good stuff, but a lot of the big two were putting out good things, you know, and Image and... Uh, we were in a pretty decent time in comics and what ended up happening is that unfortunately it just ends up being a blip in history that is just overshadowed by all the other stuff that was out at the time. Um, Like I don't really know what else came out the year that this series came out, but I'm sure there's some terrible comic out there that got way more sales and way more acknowledgement than this did um undeservedly so yeah i mean i'd have to look at what was released in 2005 but just that general early to mid 2000s era definitely i think we know what was popular back then i mean batman hush was a pretty big one yeah and that's the book that really trumpeted the idea of substance. I mean, style over substance, you know? Like, that was yeah. just a... Uh, it was all Jim Lee Flash and yeah. Jeff Loeb substanceless. Yeah. <laughs> it was a vacuum <laughs> of substance and good taste. <laughs> Completely insubstantial, you know? Yes. It, it was a book that 
is basically the ultimate manifestation of the emptiness of DC Comics. Yeah, of the most vapid kind of comics. <laughs> yep, it was all yeah. about style and hype. Just nothing of substance, nothing worth saying. All yeah. they did was throw in some big-name talent or big-name creators and uh, a big-name character, their most popular character. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter what the story is. You know, yeah. people love it. People buy it up in droves. And they and still I, keep it in print. And they still make absolute editions of it. And they treat it like it's the most evergreenest uh, Batman story in existence. Exactly. Exactly. And I think the reason why fans bought into Hush so much... Was it because they were dumb? It's because they were dumb. <laughs> and that's also exactly why DC Comics is the way it is today. Yeah. It's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that I am under no, uh, I'm under no uh, false pretense that comics is not an industry predicated on sales and money, right? It's, it's a business at the end of the day. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is they hype crap, crap, crap gains traction, and then it justifies them to make more crap exactly <laughs> it's 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 a human centipede of just trash comics yeah yeah and it's a vortex of just the worst kind of filth <laughs> that you can imagine <laughs> but right i will say this although this is a comic that you have a high regard for and it does hold a very special place in your heart. And it does sound like you have no faith in the industry or in people to <laughs> really elevate this comic. Uh, and there's a good chance that this ends up just being something that is lost to time. Uh, in spite of all that, this was a comic that we weren't, initially considering to do a podcast episode on and it wasn't until one of our listeners one of our instagram followers mentioned the intimates as something that he was curious about or they were curious about um us discussing on the podcast so clearly there are people out there who are Joe Casey fans and fans of the Intimates, maybe, I don't know, I haven't met them, and I don't know if they're as big uh, Casey fanatics as you are, Drew, but they exist, they're out there, so let that give you a little bit of hope in terms of knowing that this book did have some impact somewhere out there yeah that's a good point yeah there are a handful of people out there who do have good taste in comics so it might not be a comic that connected with a lot of people but the people it did connect with i think it connected on a deeper level yeah yeah and you never know right who knows what generation it may it may take 
um, who knows whose hands this story ends up falling in and who it ends up inspiring to to write the next great piece of work, right? There's, It's not the type of thing that's easily calculatable, but yeah it's 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 certainly a possibility and that's true yeah you never know in another 10 years or so maybe some up-and-coming comics creator will have his star be rising and he'll talk about how one of the comics that influenced him and got him into comics or made him make make made him want to make comics was the intimates you never know exactly exactly possible you never know. Maybe in 20 or 30 years, if if Warner Brothers Discovery manages to keep their superhero adaptations going, maybe they'll start to script the bottom of their barrel and make an <laughs> Intimates cartoon. <laughs> wow. Uh, but uh, something tells in... me that unless they get Man of Action to produce it, Joe Casey's probably not going to care. Yeah, yeah. It, it'll probably end up being like that Bloodshot movie that they made, right? Where <laughs> maybe... On paper, it sounds impressive that something you made got turned into a movie until you actually see the movie that you got. Then, not so much. <laughs> would you rather watch that Bloodshot movie or would you rather watch Black Adam again? At this point, I would rather watch that Bloodshot movie because yeah. at least with the Bloodshot movie, I have no idea what it is i'm watching i saw the i saw the commercial and i think i have an idea of it but there's still a chance that what it ends up being may subvert my expectations but i've already seen black adam and i knew what i was expecting and it met all of my very low expectations of it (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah. I think part of the problem with the intimates was that the book was experimental enough to turn off the Jim Lee crowd, yeah. but not quite experimental enough to draw the indie crowd or the intellectual crowd. Yeah. Yeah. So like maybe by being maybe it was a little too subversive for its own good. It couldn't really find its proper audience. Yeah, we had this conversation offline, but I I was talking, I mean, heck, we we mentioned it a little bit at the front of the podcast, but, you know, I I had read something like Demo before, which was about a real human take on people with superpowers, right? Mm -hmm. Where the superpowers weren't necessarily at the forefront of the storytelling and it was really more about what the superpowers revealed about the characters, the individuals, right? Yeah. And I was saying, well, maybe if they had given it a look that was more on the face of it, independent in style, I I would have been more mentally prepared and open to embracing this far earlier on if that was how it was presented to me but because you know common coley uh, sorry if i'm saying it wrong but you know if, if you enjoy his art there there is kind of a superhero aesthetic to it right it's 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 mm-hmm. flashy enough right yeah so 
if I see Jim Lee on it and I see Kamen Coley's art, I, I can't help but look at that and just at a cursory look presume that this is a work that is just going to be um you know more of the same and especially if i don't know anything about joe casey right mm -hmm. uh it like for for a casual observer they would just look at it and just assume well it's just teen titans but with characters i don't know i don't know if that's really something i want to take a chance on i don't know if that's really something that would interest me because if that's the case i can just read teen titans yeah or young avengers or young avengers pretty big at that time i think yeah new warriors whatever like any any number of teenage superhero books that they could be reading so it's it may be <laughs> It's kind of funny that you put it that way, but it's it almost sounds like maybe Joe Casey was too smart for his own good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess so, man. I guess so. Yeah. I remember but, a lot of other people online at the time were saying that they weren't into it because nothing's happening, you know? So yeah. It, there's yeah. early on, it definitely did have a shot at a readership, but I, I think it was just two different for your average person who picked it up because it had Jim Lee's art on the cover. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if, if anything, I guess Intimates is probably just going to be regarded as one of the other groundbreaking, critically acclaimed, and smart Joe Casey Wildstorm comics that got canceled way too quickly, you know, with along with Mr. Majestic, Kafka, version 3.0. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I was saying... A while ago that intimates is probably the last book of the golden age of wildstorm and i think there were some gems from wildstorm up until the time it was killed for good but as far as being a line or an imprint known for consistently generating creative comics this was probably closer to the tail end of that period yeah yeah and casey himself would write a few more dc books after this one but like i was saying earlier the last book he did write for them ended in acrimonious fashion when he was fired from it uh and generally speaking since then his more creative and experimental comics have been published at image and other publishers dark horse and even lion dynamite forge. yeah lion forge like he's he's the kind of guy who's willing to try you know putting his eggs in many different baskets and it's a smart thing to do the you know the career span of a comic book writer and even artist they don't have very long shelf lives it it might be a little easier art for an artist to to grab attention just by the nature of art of uh, visual art because you know people can see it right Mm -hmm. So as long as you're producing and uh, you have, especially now, social media, people people can still give you attention and, uh, you know, you have other ways of making money. But with written stuff, it's, it's, I mean, I guess there's still a better chance now with things like Substack, but, um, you know, I, I don't know that there are a huge amount of people who are, 
you know, raking it in on Substack. I'd like yeah, to think that they are. It seems like Substack, the Substack stuff is probably more geared towards people who already have pretty big fan bases. Yeah, yeah. But somebody who's just kind of starting out, um, it might be tougher. I don't really know all the financial elements of how that all works. But I was also looking at Joe Casey's uh, timeline in terms of his bibliography. And I did see that Ben 10 premiered at the end of 2005. So that must have meant that he had been working on it, you know, throughout the year and probably like a couple years before the cartoon launched. So I'm sure that like shortly after the Intimates ended with Ben 10 starting up, I'm sure his financial situation improved quite a bit. And, you know, from then on, he didn't really have to rely on the big two. That's, That's why true. He, he did a lot of stuff with the smaller publishers. And he focused on creator-owned work and just doing things that he wanted to do, you know? Like, he could be free to tell the kinds of comics stories that he wanted to tell without worrying about nobody buying it. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. It's just... I guess... I guess it just kind of hurts because you don't see his stuff quite as... Well, I mean, with a lot of writers, you don't see their stuff quite as prominently around anymore. Um, Joe Casey occasionally puts out, you know, a thing here, a thing there, like you said, uh, at, at some of the smaller publishers. And I think it's a great idea. It's it's an opportunity for you to continue to produce and cultivate your fan base and be creative, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just... Yeah, I mean, for Joe Don't Casey, tell me you'd rather see him do more no, no, Superman no, no. or Batman. No, 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 no. Spider-Man. No, not at all. I'm, I'm just lamenting the fact that, heck, if I could be a patron and give him the opportunity to just make a thing every year, that'd be great, right? And granted, totally. I don't know what he's doing, so maybe he is doing more TV stuff or whatever, right? But Yeah, I mean, Man of Action does... More than just Ben 10, from what I know. I, I think Ben 10 is just their most famous thing. And that's a big franchise that's lasted a pretty yeah. long time. They've rebooted it a couple of times, from what I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, I don't... Sometimes comics... With comics especially, it, it's, not nece- it's not necessarily about the money for some creators. And I have a feeling for Joe Casey, it's about the ability to actually make comics that's that's the passion part right exactly and exactly it's unfortunate that it's the industry that's the thing that prohibits you from being able to do that um actively prohibits you from being able to do that and yeah like if 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 he had like some sort of deal with image where he could continue to produce stuff i I would be I would be stoked for it. I'd be happy for him, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I just... I, and, like, the thing is, I consider him one of the fortunate ones. There are guys who, like, oh yeah, super disappeared. Like, Jeff Parker is someone who just totally disappeared. And uh, Sean McKeever did that one uh, letter where he talks about how one day this, the calls just stopped coming in. And yep. 
Yeah. You know, and and he was a guy, another guy who was pretty good at what he did, and he did it for the love of making comics. And you know, they just kind of cast him aside because, in their eyes, they were done with him. They got everything they wanted out of him, and they were done with him. They just moved on to probably fresher faces or cheaper, yeah. younger writers, as well as sticking yeah. with the uh, older established names that they knew could sell books. So yeah, it's kind of, yeah, comics is harsh, man. Yeah. Uh, we don't have a Sean McKeever anymore, but we did get a Donny Cates. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Sean McKeever might be doing some more stuff, though, in comics. He he did have an image book a couple years ago. Like right before the pandemic, there was Outpost Zero. That was yeah. like his return to comics. And then I think at some point within the, I want to say within the last year, I think he actually did a Marvel story for their digital app, I think. Oh, nice. Good for I, him. I don't remember because I don't have the app. So I, yeah. I don't have a way of reading it. But I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think he did do something for them or was going to do something but yeah yeah don't take my word for it that's something you should uh check online yeah, yeah exactly but yeah, yeah i'm hopeful that we'd get to see more stuff from him at some point yeah yeah and at least with joe casey occasionally you get something like you like you said some from some of the more independent uh publishers out there yeah. Like I don't I don't follow him nearly as closely as you do, so I, I have no idea what he's coming out with or not. Yeah, I can't remember what the most recent thing from him I saw was. It still feels like it's been a few years because I want to say the last thing I bought from him was All America Comics, which was his take on America Chavez, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was a, a one issue story where he kind of reclaimed the character that he co-created at Marvel uh, and, and All-America Comics reunited him with Dustin Wynn. But that was just, you know, a, a 20 or 22-page comic. Uh, wasn't very long. So, yeah. like Maybe there was some stuff that came out more recently than that, but if there is, it, it's, it's not coming to my mind at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Common Coley, on the other hand, he's been pretty active in the industry ever since the Intimates, so that's good for him. Like, hopefully, working on this comic really, uh, you know, shot him into the spotlight and let him have some good runs on things like Hellblazer and and Spider Man. He's never many really... things. Yeah. He's a so-so father. He's a oh, he's a Hellblazer. You're judging his. <laughs> You're judging him as a father now. <laughs> I was just taking a Mike Tyson quote because he said Hellblazer, and that just made me reminded me of the Mike Tyson quote. <laughs> when he called himself a Hellraiser. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I never read any of Common Coley's Spider-Man comics though, because Dan Slott wrote most of them. <laughs> oh yeah, but that was a really massive run, so good for them i guess <laughs> it wasn't a it wasn't a run i had too much interest in uh yeah it was something yeah. where on the face of it the premises sounded lame enough that 
I was confident that I didn't need to read those comics. Yeah. Yeah, I think he drew part of the Superior Spider-Man run also. I see, I see. Yeah, and I definitely don't have any interest in that. Yeah, yeah. But you uh, know one recent thing that he drew that I thought was really great? What's that? He did layouts on the other history of the DC Universe. Oh, huh. I I know you were talking about it uh, a couple of months back, and it did sound pretty intriguing. It's something that I hope to check out at some point. So, yeah, uh, I do want to take a look at that when I get a chance. Yeah, that's definitely worth reading. I'll let you borrow my copy if you want it. Cool, cool. Maybe not anytime soon. I mean, I've got a button to read, but it's definitely on my radar. And it's a pretty dense book because it's more like a an illustrated like a prose, yeah. adult prose picture book. Yeah. Right, right. It's kind of funny when you mentioned uh, when you were talking about how uh, <laughs> you you were talking about Sean McKeever and how he might have done some work at Marvel, but, uh, you know, I should investigate further as opposed to just taking it on face value. Did you investigate? No, 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 no. I was going to say that that did remind me of a scene from uh, from the Intimates. And it, it was something where I read it and I was like, huh, that's. It shows a lot of foresight on the part of Joe Casey, but I think it takes place in issue one where all the kids are there and they're sitting in class and the teacher's talking to them. And she's basically talking about how there's less of an emphasis on providing kids with knowledge at this school, because in the age of the internet, you can look up whatever you need to look up. We're more about being here to teach you how to basically discern good information from bad information and that was the thing where I read that and I was like, man, he he saw all this back <laughs> way before 2020, 2023, 2022, 2016, all that, right? In, in the age of, you know, uh, crackpot conspiracy theories and uh, fake misinformation. And misinformation. Like, he saw all that then. And I that that was something that kind of made me it made me chuckle and it made me marvel at at his perceptivity, you know? Yeah. So I guess with that, we can transition into talking about how the intimates withstands the test of time. Because I think what you just said shows that it actually has aged pretty well. Like, you know, it's commenting on things in 2005 that are still relevant in 2023. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mentioned earlier at at the top of the book where even though he does have his characters speak with a certain lexicon or a certain slang, the the point of the book isn't necessarily how these kids dress or how these kids talk. That's that's not the thing that makes them relevant or not relevant. The 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 emotional core is what makes this book relevant. The insight into the minds of these characters as they deal with their insecurities as they deal with their angst as they deal with growing up that's that's the 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 timeless stuff about this book exactly it's completely immaterial that these kids have flip phones and not smartphones yep 
and that they don't have, I don't know, Wi-Fi or whatever. You know, they're still using the technology that we yeah. were thinking about back in 2005. But just because they, of that doesn't really yeah. feel like it's dated. It's just the setting exactly. of the story, you know. But the core ideas and the themes and the characters and emotional authenticity is pretty timeless. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, reading it for the first time in 2023, I will say there there wasn't anything about it that made me stop and, you know, crook my eyebrow and go, that doesn't feel right. That feels like a pretty dated way to think about this or to think about that or to look at this, uh, to look at the world. Like, they're – granted, I'm, you know – 40 something now so maybe i don't have the freshest perspective on the world but it it didn't feel like there was any part of me that felt oof that did not that take did not age too well yeah i hear you on that man and that final issue in particular is a pretty great comic about art and commerce that'll it'll work in any era as long as comic books exist that comic will always make sense yeah yeah and i do i before i forget i did want to talk about the ending a little bit too Mm -hmm. and you know the one of the themes present in the book is the idea of characters existing within these stories and what makes a lasting character and you know the confines of the never hen- never ending infinite cyclical nature of comics right and i just thought that his way of ending it which was the kids are all just trying to get away and again you don't even necessarily know if the thing they're getting away from is a justified thing or not but they're just rebelling everything's chaotic they get onto this teleportation pad and then there's a flash of light and they're gone. And I, I believe that the text says something to the effect of, did they teleport away? Did they disintegrate? You know, we'll never know, right? Well, we'll leave that up to your imagination is essentially what he says. Mm-hmm. And in that way, in that ambiguity, he allows them to almost transcend the cancellation of the series, right? It's it's Exactly. It's a narrative... It's a narrative trick to to essentially keep them alive forever in 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 our hearts and and that's what really matters keeping them alive in our hearts. Yeah, exactly. Keeping them alive in the hearts of the readers. That's that means more than you Having know, a telling t-shirt. Exactly. <laughs> or a lunchbox with their face on it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty here, similar to here, what kids yeah. go buy your uh authentically branded intimates douche (laughs) (laughs) you want to buy official punchy douche (laughs) there's an mtv tampon (laughs) you can't see it (laughs) Uh, sorry what were you gonna say I was going to say that they did something similar or Casey and Ashley Wood did something similar in Automatic Kafka as well when they ended that series. You know, they re- they basically retired the character 
And granted, the character wasn't popular enough to warrant anybody else wanting to use him or anything. But they wrote the ending in a way where it's like, yeah, it wouldn't really make sense if anybody else tried to continue that story. And I feel like the same thing applies with the Intimates, you know? Like, clearly this is the end of their story, unless Casey were ever to come back to them, which is extremely unlikely. So, as far as I know, they've never really had any other appearances. I think... Punchy might have had uh, a cameo in like a an authority comic later on. I think I, yeah, I read that in the Wikipedia. Like a couple of them did. I think Duke might have too. Okay, yeah, but uh, I never I never read that comic. It was that was in the era of Wildstorm when I think things were starting to wind down for them. The books kind of just became pale imitations of what they originated from. So I didn't really pay attention to it. That said, yeah, it's pretty pointless just to throw these characters into the background or something. Or, you know, let's say if uh, DC wanted to create a new team of teen heroes and they just threw Destra and Duke in there for whatever reason to team them up with Static and Robin, whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. at that point, I would just be like, man, who cares about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 just a desperate tone deaf money grab at that point, right? Mm-hmm. It's just well, we have these characters. Let's just do something with them, and you know, see what sticks. Yep, that's <laughs> that's the attitude. Well, that was a heck of a tone. <laughs> Pretty downbeat. Pretty downbeat. Pretty downbeat. Boy, well, do you have, seeing as how this made it to our list of honorable mentions, I'm I'm going to forego the process of talking about uh, our rating system and how we would on this. I, I think if, if you can, just try to get a hold of it. Uh, like you said, I don't think this was ever collected as, as a trade or a hardcover of any sort, so... It'll probably be hard to get a hold of and to read, but, you know, if you ever come across it. Yeah, it's worth digging through the back issue bins for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Do you have any recommendations, Drew, for for people who have read this and want to read more like it? I have quite a few recommendations, actually. Yeah. Um, I'll try to hit them relatively quickly because i think i've mentioned most of them throughout the course of this episode but in terms of common coley comics i would definitely recommend the other history of the dc universe that one was written by john ridley common coley was credited with layouts in that book and the finishes are by andrea cucci but for a book that has common coley's name on it that's definitely a recent piece of work that i enjoyed a lot it's a story that posits uh, what if the DC universe uh, took place in real time with the comics, you know, from the 70s and 80s and so forth, taking place within those social climates, uh, and and you know, just integrating a sense of social consciousness into a fictional world that wasn't originally there. But I think it's done with enough uh, grace and sensitivity that it's actually pretty 
powerful. And I, I think people reading it today who may not be as familiar with a lot of the like civil rights things that happened in, in the past and other social justice issues, I think it can be pretty educational. Um, and at least at least it'll make you go and, you know, look up those different stories and incidents that, that are mentioned. Uh, you know, you'll do your own research and learn more about them. So I, I think it's a good piece of work. If you just want straight up Common Coley comic, probably the one to recommend is the Peter Milligan Hellblazer run, since he drew a bunch of that. A few Joe Casey recommendations to go along with the intimates first of all i gotta say mr majestic is one of them he co-wrote that with a guy named brian holguin and most of the art was by ed mcginnis with a few issues by eric canetti but that's a another super imaginative uh superhero book kind of got this sort of like a modern silver age vibe where he treats majestic like superman but also uh, just has modern sensibilities in terms of storytelling. So even though there's a story where, for example, Majestic has to hide the planet from an alien conqueror by literally pushing the planet or really like the whole solar system into somewhere else. <laughs> like it's so ridiculous, but he, he does it in a way where it's not quite as, you know, quaint as the 50s or 60s comic would have been. And it's also the series where Desmond is from. Desmond, who made an appearance in, I think, issue two of The Intimates. He's, he, was, he started off in Mr. Majestic as this little kid super genius and eventually grew up into like a super genius adult cyborg. <laughs> <laughs> of course, there's Automatic Kafka. Mentioned that. Especially that final issue, which is another great uh, piece of work full of meta commentary about art and commerce and endings in comics. Another one I would say that is probably more similar to The Intimates is X Men Children of the Atom. That's one of Casey's earliest Marvel works. Steve Rude drew a few issues of it, but Marvel was impatient with his pace, and there were a couple of uh, other artists who ended up finishing off the series. It's unfortunate, but Children of the Atom is about the original five X-Men, and it's one of those stories set in the past. It's like a story about the original formation of the team. Like a and year it's a, one? Yeah, like a year one story. But I think Casey's take on it Similar to what he does in The Intimates, he actually tries to delve into the inner lives of the five teenagers. He kind of focuses on their internal drama and their relationships with each other. The biggest difference between Children of the Atom and The Intimates is that there's a lot more superhero stuff in Children of the Atom. He does make more of a concession to you know telling a straightforward plot over those six issues. I don't know, maybe in some ways that, that makes it easier to read. It's certainly not as experimental, but you do get to see how he writes superhero teens with a similar kind of tone. So I would definitely point to that. I got a few more recommendations, but uh, I'll let you share some of yours, man. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, I don't have quite as many as you do, but 
I I did mention earlier in the episode that one of the comics that did come to me quite a bit as I was reading this was Demo by Brian Wood and I believe Becky Cloonan, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, it's unfortunate because Brian Wood has been outed and he has a history of pretty pretty bad behavior with his treatment of uh women so if if that's not something that you can get past then uh i i'd probably say that's this is something that you can skip but i do think that uh demo by brian wood and becky cluden is a pretty thought-provoking take on super-powered people Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it's a story. It's 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 an anthology series where each of the characters has these powers, and these powers illuminate something about their own personal selves as they, uh, you know, learn to use these powers or have these powers. So there's that. the The second thing that I was thinking of, funnily enough was this was a comic that reminded me of Deadly Class on some level, and that's something that we're reading right now. So Mm -hmm. uh, I think the drama of being a teenager and dealing with angst and identity identity and all that other stuff is present in both of these works, but with Deadly Class, it's more exaggerated in terms of the pathos and the emotional impact. But if the recommendation is purely based about recommending something that is similar to the intimates in the sense that it deals with high school kids being high school kids but under unconventional circumstances but having the same kind of introspections and epiphanies this would probably be a good match so i do think that if you've been listening to our deadly class episodes we've talked about this quite a bit how you know even though they're assassins at a school for assassins a lot of the drama really does revolve around just the fact that they're all teenagers doing, acting out in ways that typical teenagers kind of would. But the only difference being that because they're assassins, those outbursts and behaviors are pushed to the most extreme assassiniest place that you can take it to. You like that? I made up a word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you tickled me. <laughs> so, you know, uh, if you want to read something like The Intimates, uh, but you want to get a little bit more of that after you've checked it out, read Deadly Class and listen to our episodes on Deadly Class that we've been doing over the course that we've been doing and that we will continue to do over the course of this year. Sounds good. All right, so next up I have... Howard the Duck, number 16, which is the Deadline Doom issue. That one's by Steve Gerber. And the reason why I picked this one is because that was the infamous issue where I think Steve Gerber was moving across the country or something, and he fell behind on his deadlines. And the entire issue is basically like one or two page splashes, uh, spot illustrations, really, with his prose as he writes about the difficulties of maintaining a schedule, uh, the aspects of 
art that influenced him and you know just very uh a very much behind the curtains look into the creation of a comic that i think uh if you dug the stuff in issue 12 of the intimates where we get to hear in the info scrolls some of joe casey's thoughts on the series and some of the pitfalls and challenges that he had to face i think howard the duck number 16 does something similar but maybe even on like a more detailed degree because it's it devotes a lot more space to all of that stuff so it's it's certainly worth reading i'm sure an original copy of that is probably a little expensive but you know you can look it up in a trade paperback or get a digital version or something shouldn't be too hard to to read borrow it from the library if you need to a couple other issues and these are two issues that reminded me or i guess i would say the intimates number six reminded me of these two issues but intimates six was the one where they fall into sykes's head and there are a couple issues of x-men and x-force that did something similar uh the nuff said issues of new x-men and x-force so new x-men number 121 by grant morrison and frank quitely it's a journey where gene gray and emma frost go inside uh, professor xavier's mind it's pretty trippy and x-force number 123 is by peter milligan and mike allred and that's the one where dupe pops a pimple and sucks the entire team into his body (laughs) (laughs) yeah so both of those are when marvel is doing that enough said gimmick so they made their creative teams tell a story without using words so both of those comics are about the teams going into somebody's head and and traversing a bizarre mindscape with all sorts of interesting and strange imagery but yeah those are good comics nice nice you have any stories about teen superheroes in high school oh geez uh the one thing that jumps out at me on that end would probably be well we talked about a few of them but i think the one that we didn't mention is probably the one that emotionally might be the closest would be something like runaways Mm. like mm-hmm. even though they're all high school dropouts <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true i guess the setting isn't actually a school um well i guess some of them end up going to school a little yeah. bit later on but yeah. <laughs> um I, well okay that's that's the one thing that i could think of i like if you really just want to read more about young superheroes with raging hormones trying to deal with you know coming into their own while dealing with superpowers that would probably be the story that i'd pick but the other comic that i was thinking of that i feel touches on a couple of things that are similar to the intimates would be something like animal man by grant morrison and Chaz trog i think oh okay and I think the thing about that in particular that I feel resonates with something like The Intimates is there's a section in Animal Man, especially towards the end, when it becomes 
this meta commentary of what it means for the characters to essentially meet their creator, uh, you know, Grant Morrison. It's it's a pretty famous ending to the series, mm-hmm. but but I do think that it shares similarities in terms of just the idea of what it must be like to be the writer or a creator for a comic and to have to deal with your creation and what it means to essentially put your heart and soul on the page. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think there are similarities there that exist. Yeah, that makes sense. I didn't initially think of that, but when you describe it that way, Animal Man does make sense. Mm. I yeah. thought of a couple of teen superheroes in high school stories, man. What you got? What you got? First of all, this one's not a comic. It's a movie, but Sky High, a Disney <laughs> movie. <laughs> that was a fun movie, dude. I did enjoy that one, man. Yeah. Like it's it's definitely more on the I guess schlocky. <laughs> schlocky. Yeah, schlocky side. You know, it, it is aimed at kids and whatnot. Yeah. But it's it's fun. It's an entertaining movie and there's some pretty uh fun actors who, who are in it, like Bruce Campbell's in it, Linda Kurt Carter's Russell. in it, Kurt Russell's in it. Yeah. 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 That's a nice that's a nice plug because that's truly a movie that's been lost to time. I don't think people think about that at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It came out the same year as The Intimates. This is a 2005 movie. Then we found a thematic cohesion there. Because uh, they both came out at the same time, and they have both kind of faded into the background. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe one, but, one of these days, man, somebody will do a, a Sky High remake. <laughs> Well, but that's the thing. If you got Disney Plus, I'm pretty sure it's on Disney Plus. So, that's true. Yeah. You know, so if you're listening to us and you happen to have Disney Plus, give it a watch. Give it a hundred watches. <laughs> make them know you love it, so they'll make it an make they'll make another one. <laughs> exactly. We're in the age of the reboot and the revamp. We might just give it another a second life. <laughs> exactly. And then. The other really big uh, comic about teen superheroes in high school. You know what it is, right? No, I'm kind of curious now. What's all that noise? It's Pepper. She's scratching the sofa because she's... (laughs) She's trying to get comfortable. She's trying to get comfortable, so she's... It's it's the dog equivalent of like hitting your pillow to, see, to try to get it to to be soft. Okay. Well, in in lieu of a drum roll, I guess we've got Pepper scratching the couch. <laughs> but the the big one, man, the big one that we didn't mention at all this entire time is <clears throat> Boku no Hero Academia. <laughs> oh. That was my imitation at what a weeb sounds like. But I'm talking about My Hero Academia. (laughs) Uh, We haven't actually read it, but in our next 
manga menagerie episode. We are going to cover it. So for those of you listening, this is a little bit of a heads up for a future episode. You can uh, check out what we have to say about that. <laughs> exactly. My Hero Academia. Coming soon on Between the Gutters. <laughs> All right. Well, if you happen to be listening to us on whatever platform you're listening to us on, if you happen to give us a five-star recommendation or whatever you think we deserve, we would greatly appreciate that. If you want to hit us up, if there's anything you want to ask us about what we talked about today, about the intimates, or if there are any recommendations you want to make of your own, feel free to hit us up on our Instagram. DM us at Between the Gutters on Instagram, or you can email us at Between the Gutters Podcast at Gmail, or Between the Gutters on Twitter. Thanks for listening, everybody. Next week, we will be back with coverage of another comic that deals with teenage issues. We're going to be talking about Smile by Reina Telgemeier. Peace out, everybody. Bye, everyone.